0: Shadows Over Innistrad and the Banned and Restricted List Update on Episode 52 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to Episode 52 of So Many Insane Plays, our Shadows Over Innistrad review, with special bonus discussion about the April Banned and Restricted List Update. I'm Kevin Krohn with Stephen Menedian. Hi, everyone. If you have any questions or comments, you can tweet us at ManyInsanePlays, email us at SomanyInsanePlaysPodcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManaDrain.com. For announcements this episode, we have to touch on the elephant in the room. The Golem in the, the Room. A, the Golem in the Room. To right. The April twenty sixteen abandoned restrict list update, which has one entry, and that is the restriction of Lodestone Golem. <sighs> How to parse, Steve? Well, this shall is. I read, this is. Shall I read what they said at least? Well, let's
1: just first note that this has created a firestorm of yeah. discussion. Uh, yeah. And we we will leave no stone unturned here. But but, <laughs> um, before we actually read the the description or justification, why don't we just say what our big takeaways are, and then we'll analyze we'll analyze
0: afterwards. You go. Well, okay. Um, my big takeaway is that their decision appears at least uh, to our data gathering and analysis to be heavily, heavily influenced by the Magic Online metagame and potentially to the exclusion of the paper metagame. But that's a little bit of an editorial. Yeah. What do you think? Steve?
1: Well my editorial is I think the decision was justified and perfectly legitimate. We'll debate some of the merits of that, but that's I think that's my my takeaway.
0: Okay. Okay. Let's hear their language, though. This is in Wizards' words. I'm just going to quote this paragraph. We continue to see an imbalanced metagame. In particular, Mishra's workshop-based decks continue to be significantly overrepresented, reducing the competitive metagame. While this issue could be solved by restricting the namesake card, if possible, we would like to keep the deck as competitive level, but played to an extent that the format is more diverse overall. Lodestone Golem leads to some of the less interactive games. We are hopeful that limiting Workshop decks to only one copy of this card leaves the deck at an appropriate strength. For that reason, Lodestone Golem is restricted.
1: Interesting, the three elements that stand out in that description is diversity, diversity, Mm-hmm. over representation in interactivity mm-hmm. which i yeah. think are often key elements in any policy decision of this magnitude i find almost all of these announcement descriptions lacking or wanting and this one is no is no exception in fact if you go back to the 90s, you'll find that their their announcement descriptions are terse, mm-hmm. not very substantive, and fairly superficial. So, I I mean, we've we parsed many of these in the past, and this one's really no different.
0: But it, It's a lot of the same language and implication as the chalice restriction, for example.
1: Yeah, you know, there have been lots of different language that they've used in the past that's a lot worse. They could do a lot worse. <laughs> I mean, at one point yeah. they talked about just restricting fast mana or tutors because that that's what they function to do, and yeah. I think we've moved beyond that in no small part because of discussions and, and people who have advanced these discussions and, and framed the discourse around these kinds of debates. Really, the the key elements really are diversity and interactivity and um, you know representation, dominance. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. I think it's the right frame. The question is, <laughs> at least if you're going to critique that justification as presented does the data support it which we'll get into in just a moment but I I don't really have much more to say about what they said there
0: yeah fortunately for you and I and for our listeners we're fresh off of a pretty exhaustive metagame update for our prior episode which means we're well armed with a whole bunch of data about the paper and digital metagames with which to try to tease out what underpins their statements about overrepresentation, and diversity if you
1: listen to our last podcast we talked a lot of data.
0: Well, the good news is we've made it all public.
1: So the spreadsheet that we're making public is called Q1 Vintage Metagame Data. There are about 10 different tabs. You can look at MTGO data, you can look at paper data. There are concerns about whether the paper tournaments aren't large enough, so we've got them weighted according to the quantity of players. We've got this data in pivot tables. We've got basically everything you'd ever need here, so just go to the show notes, it'll be there. You can find it's color-coded, it's beautiful. (laughs) Kevin and I both put some, some hard work into this, but we're going to be referencing a lot of data here. And to be honest, Kevin... This discussion kind of prompted me to dive into the depths of my uh, spreadsheets because back in the day, you know, we referenced last time, I used to use metagame reports where every two Mm -hmm. months or every quarter I would summarize all the paper reported. We didn't have Magic Online for Vintage at the time, all the reported tournament top eights, and do a bunch of analysis. I would look at, you know, what's the percentage of of each deck or archetype and, and even cards and top eights. I look at individual cards like Force of Will and Yawgmoth's Will and Time Vault. I look at strategies, and and so. I actually have spreadsheets of looking at workshop data going back to like 2007 all the way through 2011 at which point I stopped collecting the data and doing the analysis but it is a reference an interesting reference point so as we discuss this I may talk about historical patterns and trends and I can make those mm-hmm. I can make those public as well I'm um, also interesting to note before we get into the details too much that um and I posted this on Twitter but there have now been 92 cards restricted in vintage history and I posted a little mm-hmm. line graph can see all of the, the the basic trends and of those 92 49 have been removed since 1994 now of course at least one of those restrictions gush has it counts for two cards uh, two <laughs> of the 92 the current list though is 43 cards which is well below the historic high which i believe is around 56 or so maybe 54 um despite the fact that the card pool is much much larger so mm-hmm. it's interesting to know, you know, we've been in this low 40s number for about six years now. It's it's felt pretty good, hasn't it, Kevin?
0: Well, and they've done a fair bit of unrestriction. Exactly. To, to counteract, so to speak, not functionally, but to balance out the, the necessary restrictions of late. I mean, the Delve spells, I think you and I agreed, were pretty ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> they,
1: they were busted. But But there have been two... Peaks, if you will, in, in terms of restriction. One was around, I'd say, 2004 ish. And another, though, was after the wave of restrictions in 2008. And between 2008 and roughly 2000, and I want to say like 13 or whatever, maybe even last year, all they did was unrestrict basically one mm-hmm. under restriction a year there were no cards restricted for about a 5 year period between the restriction of thirst for knowledge in 2009 and the restriction of i believe treasure cruise nothing was restricted in vintage mm-hmm. for a format where people must think things are restricted all the time there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of hands off let 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 live ethos libertarian ethos in vintage and i think the player base appreciated it
0: well, let's get into what really drove the decision here, at least to our eyes, into the data we've gathered. And we're going to focus heavily on the the magic online metagame here because we believe it it's the more persuasive and potentially arguably relevant story here. Yeah, yeah, Explanatory is probably the best word, yes. <clears throat> now, as we alluded to in our prior episode of metagame analysis, Mishra's Workshop decks were making up the largest portion of the successful decks in the dailies for the portion of Q1 that we analyzed. And, Starting and, from and January by successful, 1. Successful,
1: we're talking about 3 1 and 4 0, which are the only decks exactly. that are reported. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Uh, which we believe is roughly analogous to a top 8 but, in a, an otherwise Swiss just event. Just to
1: be clear, a 4 0, in our opinion, in a six round Swiss event, is guarantees you basically guarantees you top 8. So. I think, yeah. And we have that disaggregated in our spreadsheet. So you can go and yes. look at it, see all the four O's, and then you can see the four O's and three and three ones combined.
0: <clears throat> now, when we did this, the time period cutoff here is for late March. It does not include the last week of March, but that's because of our last show. And it's worth noting that the last week of March would not have been part of their metrics anyway, because we know this decision was made in early March, thanks to what we've learned about the timing of the banner restricted list discussions. So, in the time period in question, for most of Q1, workshops were far and away the best performer online with 30% of the 3, 1, and 4-0 decks. Yep. With a pretty good gap between there and the second place deck, which was Dredge at 15%. Right, right. (laughs) So, a pretty clear first place. We
1: talked about that in our last podcast but it bears mentioning magic online daily results by the best performing you know basically strategy was workshop strategy workshops with 30 percent of the daily reported decklist 30 percent. the next being dredge that's very different first of all people when i tell that to them they can't believe it like chris pakula said he couldn't believe the dredge was the second best performing, you know archetype in Mm -hmm. magic online but also people then when they hear that they think well my god magic online is so distorted and we said that i want to be clear about this i think the paper results have flaws and the magic online results have flaws Mm -hmm. um i'm not saying that that's a flaw here but i it is a tremendous difference as we discussed last time dredge wasn't even in like the top four top performing archetypes in paper right yeah i don't know where it was but it wasn't in the top so it's the second best and and i think on paper shops were around like 20 some percent of, of the top eights. So there's a there's a, a 10% difference on, between MGGO dailies and paper-reported tournaments. Now let's jump into the premier events, which we've since aggregated and calculated. Kevin?
0: So we are looking at primarily the Q1 premier events, right? January, February, and March. Now, the March event would have happened after the decision was made, but before the recording of this show. So it's in something of a limbo between, yeah. of relevance. Right. <laughs> uh, but looking at the let's say January and February results for emphasis, over that time period, Shops was also far and away the best single performing deck yeah. across the the top sixteens and top. especially in the top fours <laughs> and, the, and the top two. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I mean, across well, me, across January and February, if you look at the top four places for those two premier events, so we're talking about eight decks shops with half of those.
1: Yeah, let, let me let me just break it down for everyone because you're you're kind of giving the the big takeaway. So, and we'll, we'll disaggregate this in several different ways. So, we have all the premier events, and and I I also want to preface this by saying that I believe I don't know about you, Kevin, but I believe that the MTGO power nine challenge events which is what we're talking about the premier events is probably mm. the best single data point in all of vintage right now that isn't to say that like and i want to be clear i don't think it's better than the vintage championship but it's the best single regularly reported data point um you know <laughs> right. so of the of the paper events there's really nothing that reaches that size consistently you've got the lcv events in europe that's like 30 40 players this mm. event is is global. You have people from Europe, people from Japan, people from America playing in it. North America. It is large and it's highly competitive. It's large. I mean, all these events are like. I think the smallest is in the 70s. The largest is well over 100. Mm. Um. So you're you're basically talking about 80, 90 player tournaments fairly consistently, and it's highly competitive. You've got Hall of Famers, vintage champions, multiple uh, VSL competitors, Tom Martell, Luis, Randy Bueller, myself, Rich Shea. Um. So I think it's the best data point. I don't want to overstate that. I think that you have to look at all data but Mm -hmm. if you want to rely on one thing in particular I think that's the best thing to look at so what we've done is we've got all the top 16 deck lists for no, all five of the premier events, all five of the Power Nine challenges so far. So we've got November, December, January, February, and March. But we are fo- and we'll present all that data. But we're going to f- present the Q1 first. And so what Kevin has just said is that in the top 16, let's be clear about this. In the top 16, which is what the, all the decks are reported, shops are 31.3% of the top 16 deck lists, which interestingly enough is basically identical to the daily results. Right. Yeah. So there's a strong correlation, which suggests the premier events are telling us the same thing as the dailies when you go to top eight, there's a slight drop-off for shops to about 29.6%, rounded up to 30%. But when you go to the top four, it jumps to 42%, and then in the finals, it jumps to 50%. So basically, as you go from top 16 to eight to four to to the finals, shops' margin jumps by about 10%. In fact, it jumps by about 10% from eight to four to finals, which suggests not only these shops doing really, really well for being the, the most prevalent deck in the top eights, arc- archetype in the top eights, but it's also kicking butt in the top eights.
2: Um, mm-hmm.
1: And in fact... February is the most egregious example of all. As Kevin noted before we started recording the show, shop decks were, I think, was it nine of the top 16, Kevin? Eight.
0: Eight. Eight. They They're half of the top 16 yeah. in February. And
1: and we can and it's we would posit that, that they if you're the DCI, you're probably going to be looking at February to make your decision since they made these decisions a month in advance. So it's, it's not shocking, given the results there, that they might decide to restrict Lodestone Golem. But we should also mention, just for completeness sake, that if you... Tear back just a little bit further to November and December. You get fairly similar results. Shop decks were 30% of the top 16s, if you include them. 30% of the top eights, and 35% of top fours. And I. Be- That's it.
0: That's if you aggregate all of the five premiere events. Right. All the way going yeah. back to November, December. So it's uh, yeah.
1: basically the pretty much the same
2: story.
0: Now I think you lose a little bit of the narrative when you aggregate, Steve, because if you look month over month from November through March, there's a high degree of variability in the presence of shops in the top 16s
1: definitely so for example and i think for example i in think november, should not be lost in november there were no shop decks in the top eight but there were three <laughs> in the top 16 yet you, you fast forward it to february there were five in the top eight or sorry four in the top eight and four more in,
0: no th- three in the top eight no in february there Just was four. Oh, th- oh i'm sorry four yes yeah
1: and then yep, four yep. in the bottom half of the top 16 so i i have i believe that if you look at the premiere event decks you look at and if you look at all the decks that are played, what makes top eight? and you look at the results, there's been tremendous variability. I mean, we haven't had the same archetype win one of these events. The winners, just for the record, are DPS, Efro played that, Oath, Mentor, Ravager Shops, and Show and Tello. Um, and I think also the win percentages have dramatically changed. Matt Murray and Ryan Eberhardt have collected that data. I reported the very first uh, metagame breakdown for the November one on Eternal Central, as you may recall, longtime listeners, and there were only <laughs> eight shop decks out of 93 players in the November event. Only eight. Now, mind you, three of those eight made top 16, but only eight. Now, that's not even close to the same as some of these subsequent events where shops surged. Part of it was that Doomsday and TPS did so, DPS did so well in, no, in November that we saw a surge of shops. Um, so I, I think what that suggests, the metagame is churning, it's dynamic, people are responding to trends, but the question is, did something have to be done? Or, if not have to be done, was the decision legitimate or justifiable? Mm-hmm. I've already made my position on that, but I think Kevin and I are going to discuss that a little bit.
0: Kevin, is there anything else you want to say about this data? I just want to reinforce that to my eyes, and I think to many people, if you are the DCI and you're looking to do something, <laughs> that is, you've heard some feedback from players, you've watched the VSL, you've looked at the results for dailies, and you're you're sitting in late February, early March, trying to make a decision about vintage, then you're going to be looking at the, the Q1 results for dailies, which says 30% success rate for shops by our definition and you're probably going to look pretty close at that February premiere event result where shops was 50% of the top 16, 50% of the top 8, 50% of the top 2, yes. 100% of the top 1. <laughs> yeah. um, you're you're going to look powerfully at that February result and I think I really think as you just alluded to, there's there's ebbs and flows here, some pretty powerful ones. Yes. Strong ebbs and Definitely. flows here. Um I, I can't shake the notion that the February premiere played very powerfully into the decision-maker's eyes.
1: Sure. I mean, I think that's probably the case here. Um, But even if you take a wider lens, I think the data Mm -hmm. is still pretty similar. I mean, even if we were to sort of, I think, extract February from here, you still have 30% of MTGO dailies as shops, which is double the next archetype. You know, that, yeah. that is a huge difference. Now, look, a lot of people who... Let's be clear about this. This has not been a very popular... People are complaining yeah. everywhere. I don't agree with most of the criticism. I think part of what people are complaining about is they're saying if you look at paper events, this does not seem to be justified. I think that's wrong. Now, let's, mm-hmm. let's get into that. Let's remind people, the paper events out of 155 decks in top eights, we had 31 mud decks or 20% of the top eights. Mm-hmm. I think my position is nuanced. What I said was I think it's a legitimate and justifiable restriction. We have, in the past, come up with so many different approaches to policymaking when it comes to banned and restricted lists. In the past, I have, in particular, have put a lot of emphasis on what I've called dominance, or a monopoly uh, metagame, where you have one deck that sort of dominates the metagame and distorts everything around it. And one of the best examples of that, the most dominant empirically dominant deck I've ever seen in Vintage, is Thirst for Knowledge uh, Time Vault deck, which was about 40-some percent of top eights. Historically, mm-hmm. dominance, though, if you go back to, say, 2003 and look at Gush decks, you get to about 30%. That's pretty dominant for one deck, one strategy. Um, so, But the que- there is a question as to whether is it legitimate to restrict cards in decks that aren't dominant, or what if there appears to be an overrepresentation, but it doesn't necessarily qualify as a monopoly or dominance? I want to be clear. These kinds of debates exist in lots of other contexts. I mean, you know, in law, and monopoly power, there's a whole question: is what kind of market power do you have to have before you're defined as a monopoly? You know, um, I think that there is a wide scope for decision making where an action may not be necessary in air quotes, but it may be justified. And so I think there's a gray area where we can sort of put, it, think about it like this, and maybe an analogy is mulliganing. You know, there are hands that are auto mulligans, there are hands that are auto-keeps, but then there's a big gray area. In my opinion, when it comes to the ban and restricted list, there are clear instances where you have data that shows extreme dominance, like Thirst for Knowledge in 2009, you have to restrict. There are also cases where it would be absurd to restrict, where there's no tournament or empirical evidence whatsoever, which is what I think the case is for Dark Petition. But what if something falls, let's say, I don't know, just where Workshops does, about 30-35% of top eights. I think if you have that data, and it's even 25%, I think you're in justifiable grounds. And I went back and looked at Workshop Decks from 2007 to 2011, and with only one quarter exception, there was never a quarter in which Workshop Decks are more than 20% of top eights, which they have been consistently over the last year, what we've seen. So I think that both the restriction of Chalice and Gollum were justifiable, even though I don't necessarily agree with them in the sense that I wouldn't have necessarily done it myself. But I do think all the data available to us, it was justifiable. But I just want to be clear, that doesn't mean I would have done it. It, it just means it's not a completely unjustifiable decision.
0: Kevin? Another way to put that would be, we've often pointed to that tesseract example, that Thirst for Knowledge example from 2009, that 40% number as a, a pretty good example of unhealth. Yeah. <laughs> right? 40% is bad. And we have consistently looked at the shop's numbers for the better part of the last year and looked at about 20 to 25% and said, it's high, but... It's okay. I mean, it's, it's we can live with twenty to twenty-five yeah. percent. Yeah. I mean, twenty acceptable. I think is a good way to well, put it. Workshops
1: tend to show up as about twenty to twenty-five percent of the metagame in most of these big tournaments. So being twenty percent, twenty-five percent of top eights isn't necessarily a huge problem. I mean, right. but
0: but well, what I'm what I'm saying is is that that the thirty percent number you see today in vintage dailies, it, that, we're clearly in the definition of the in between area, yes. right? Once you hit thirty percent, it seems it catches your eye and you start to think maybe. It's Overrepresented. Maybe.
1: It is. Yeah. It is overrepresented. And, and I think that part of what they said is just empirically true. And all the people who are saying, well, it's not winning, it's not doing – I mean, look, I'm not saying they had to do it. Just to be clear, if I had my way, I would have restricted Gollum instead of Chalice six months ago. I've, mm-hmm. I'm on the record and our podcast is saying that. I think that would have been the right decision. They decided right. to restrict Chalice. I think this was th- probably in the long run inevitable. For years, I've said that you know I'm on the fence about Gollum. I'm not sad to see Gollum go. I think there are lots of reasons, which we'll get into, that I think besides just the data suggest that it was a, a good candidate for restriction and will actually produce a more healthy metagame. But if you're just looking at data... I think there is more than enough. There's ample data to support their decision. I don't think it's arbitrary or irrational in any stretch of the imagination. Anyone who says so (laughs) is frankly ignorant of the data, you know, now, or they're simply discounting the MTGO data unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. That doesn't to say that MTGO is, again, a perfect data set, but certainly neither is paper. Paper has just yeah. as many distortion as as MTGO. Um,
2: just as many? <laughs>
1: well, I think I you know I, I wouldn't say it's not something you can quantify, but it has many distortions. I mean, people in paper metagames um, ten you know metagames are very different in, in local yeah. communities. People tend to gravitate towards what's going on in their local community as opposed to some sort of globalized metagame. Um, card price, card price, paper has proxies, proxies, all of it it's in in, yeah. in their environments that don't have proxies. Um, and exactly, all of that is really critical to bear in mind, but. You know, I often think that a lot of so a lot of the objections to what's happening is people are saying the data doesn't support it. Well, actually, the data does support this this restriction. Now, the data that we talked about when they restricted Chalice, Kevin, you may recall when we said workshops were at the time were 50% of MTGO daily results when they restricted mm-hmm. Chalice. So it was much more egregious before.
2: <laughs> you know, now they're <laughs>
1: only 30% of, of the daily results in the premier top 16s. Granted, they're 50% of the top fours. Yeah. Um, and of the top eights, but it was much worse before Chalice was restricted. Um, So I don't know if there's anything else more you want to say about the data empirics here. Um,
0: Well, I do want to touch on the paper results, though. Yeah, go for it. And not to the same degree, but just as a refresher for our last episode, the paper results tell a different story, as Steve just alluded to. And if you just look at our, our metric for appearances, that is appearances in top eights, for all of the data we were able to glean from tcdex.net for the same time period, workshop decks and mentor decks were effectively tied in at paper. 20 to 21 right, percent in paper. in paper. Yeah, first and second place were effectively tied at 20 percent, with a big gulf then down to the the six, seven, eight percent range for dark petition and oath. So. Paper tells a dramatically different story. It tells workshops not dominating nearly as much, and it also tells basically a tie ball game for first and second place, which... That tie is broken if you look at Gush decks instead of just Mentor. If you add Delver and Doomsday and Gush Tendrils in, you get Gush being far and away in first place.
1: Well, I would quibble with the term far and away, but it's a it's a per- noticeable percentage.
0: Yeah, it's noticeable. Yeah, you would never confuse the two as being tied <laughs> if you combine Gush all of the Gush decks together. But,
1: but we've got to counterbalance <laughs> so, that with the with the MTGO Gush results, which are significantly less than Workshops. Yeah i mean i, I think so these, yeah
0: we've we've already alluded to some of the reasons for this right uh, the magic online has definitely a, a, def, a magic online has a decidedly different economy than paper <laughs> magic does both from a sanctioning standpoint and from a proxy standpoint but just simply from a card price standpoint now you might argue that for some players for proxy players paper is cheaper than magic online and for a lot of people that's true Uh, But for other players, that's not the case. Some players are driven to decks. The thing is, players are driven to different decks by the economics of the two platforms. I'm not here to say that economics are more or less powerful in one or the other, but they push people in different directions. So that's one thing.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, I, I think there's been a, certainly a wide range of response to this, but I think the two most prevalent responses have been the data doesn't support the restriction, which I think is just false. And and, it, and the other part is that, well, look at how good Gush is doing. Um, mm-hmm. So it's certainly true that Gush is performing pretty much on par when you look at the data for paper, but – if you look at the online results, it's a very different picture. Mtgo, I think people just since it's out there, Mtgo results. I'm just going to give them the same data that we just did. If you look at all five of the premier events, like let's just do Q1 because it's a little bit clearer. Q1 top 16 gushes 20 21% of top 16 deck lists. That's 20. 20.8%. Top eight, it's 222 Top four, it's 33%. In the finals, it drops to 17%. So compare Gush in the finals of the Q1 Premier Event, MTGO Power Nine, 17% compared to 50% for Shops. It's not even close. Um, if we add, <laughs> if we add November and December, the data is almost is very similar. Gush did actually its best performance in the November uh, in the November uh, Premier Event, and Gush was only 23% of top 16s. Thirty percent of top eights and thirty percent of top fours. So um, you know it's it's still way way behind shops on MTGO. I just want to be clear about that. And Kevin, one other one last point on the empirics for people who say that you know let's say you're a, a devastated shops pilot, which I can empathize with, and you say the data just isn't there. They're not winning a lot enough. But remember the the deck that won the most number of paper tournaments was shops. We talked about that last week. Seven with seven wins tournament wins and the paper mm-hmm. events. I don't know what it would take to, you know, if you're going to say, oh, well, Shops has to put up 40% of top eights. I don't think that's the DCI. It does not have to reach 40% to decide to restrict something. I don't think it's unreasonable mm. that they would restrict with less. And I'll give you an example. Anyone who disagrees with that statement, go look at the Trinisphere top eight results. Trinisphere was legal <laughs> and vintage for an entire year, from February 2004 to February uh, to March February March 2005. And I have posted on the Managrade all the data that Phil Stanton had collected during that period. And Trinisphere decks were not near, you know, they were not even performing as well as Shops decks are right now, so uh, prior to this restriction. So the question is not, you know, it's not one of just pure empirics, it's also a number of other factors. It's what extent is this deck warping the metagame, distorting the metagame, undermining the diversity, and creating mm-hmm. less interactive games? Trinisphere was not restricted because of its dominance. It was restricted because it was totally uninteractive. <laughs> in fact, if they let Trinosphere stand restricted, its dominance might have decreased with the printing of Dredge because the Dredge mm-hmm. Act just completely bypasses as a, as a, in many respects as a threat. Dredge emerged a year later in 2006. So empirics are a big part of the story, but they're not everything. That's all.
0: Yeah, it's true. But uh, t- I believe that... Y- <laughs> you you appear to be in a similar mindset to the dci in this decision making process you point to the magic online results with vehemence you point to the paper results with dismissiveness, I, I think that I think that you're falling victim a little bit to the trust of the Magic Online results. Well, look, look, we've look. we've acknowledged that they both have flaws, but you appear to not be acknowledging any of the flaws of the online results. So
1: I, I think what you sta- stated is probably either overstated or not true. I I have I think all data is relevant and should be weighed. All data. Mm. What I'm mm-hmm. saying is that let me just be clear. You look at the paper data. Mud is basically you know right behind Gush a little bit behind Gush in terms of overall percentage of top eights, workshop decks rather. Um they have the most number of tournament victories with seven. thirty percent of yep. all paper victories. Um yep. so that is very it very strong evidence that mud is doing very well in the, in the environment. I don't think it, it overrepresented in paper, but it's certainly well represented. If you add MTGO, the, I think, either add MTGO to that data or just look at MTGO alone, the case becomes much stronger for restricting Lodestone Golem. Now, if I were the DCI, I probably, if I was going to restrict Golem, I would have done it six months ago instead of Chalice, or I would have done it when Lodestone Golem was 50% of the Vintage Championship top 8s a couple years ago. I think there have been multiple times where, in the past, couple of years where restricting lodestone would not have been a shocker. It would have appeared justified to most people and would have been empirically Mm -hmm. justified. I do not dismiss paper. I think paper is relevant, and I think MTGO is relevant. That said, if I was going to give weight, more weight to something, I would give slightly, slightly more weight to MTGO for one reason. I've said this before, because I think that the Power 9 challenge is the most relevant data point we have. That's all. That's the only reason. It's just the most competitive. We have the best players. It's global and it's regular, so we can track it. I, I, that's it. And I don't. I don't mean to. I'm not trying to put my foot, you know, on the scale too much. I just think it deserves a bit more credit than anything else.
0: Well, over the the whole of the five premier events, shops and Gush have the same top eight percentage in that event, and they have the same number of wins at one, and they're both in second place yeah. behind so, oath in terms of wins.
1: So let's 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 get to that. So if you look at Q one, Gush is twenty percent of the top sixteens. So it's not the same as shops. I was
0: looking at all five of them. Sure, but, yeah. if you look
1: at all five, it's only 23%. It goes up by three percentage points. So Gush yeah. is actually diminishing over time in terms of its representation in the top 16 of these events.
0: If Well, that depends on how much weight you put on March, sure, of course. Sure, sure, sure.
2: <laughs>
1: but, but my point, my point though, is that it's not even close to Gush. It's shops, rather. So I think...
0: Well, hold on, hold on. It, you're cherry-picking numbers. It is close to Gush, or Shops, I mean. They have the same top eight percentage exactly over the course of those five events.
1: Yeah, all five, but if you look at Q1, it, it's 30 30- percent compared to 22 percent
0: q1 okay yeah if you look at q1 q1 has the highest standard deviation yeah no q1 has the highest standard deviation possible (laughs) out of these two decks performances month over month listen shops went from 18 and a half to 50% of top 16 to 25% of top sixteens. Gush went from 6%, a paltry 6% in January to a paltry 12% in February to 44% in March. There's a
1: lot of variance. There's no doubt about it. There's tons of variance. Here's the thing. thing. So what are you suggesting? Are you suggesting they should have restricted Gush as well? I mean, it's clear if you look at the data. It's clear. This is not disputable. The shops outperformed Gush on Magic Online. That's not in question. What
0: you're saying, though... It is in question depending on what metrics you If use. you look at if you look at the top And which time If stages. you look at the top 16, top 8, mm-hmm. top 4 or
1: finals from Q1, shops outperform gush. If you look at the top 16 or top 4 or finals from all 5 shops outperformed gush the only data point the only one out of all eight of those where gush and shops performed comparably was in was in all five data points top eights that's it also that's it.
0: also wins okay. also wins okay.
1: so but th- but my point my
0: point okay there's just two <laughs> so you, yeah, there's you, two. look at steve my here's here's this is symptomatic of what I'm talking about. You're dismissing my point that they have the same number of wins, whereas you're relying on the fact that in paper shops had seven wins without commenting on the fact, hold on, without commenting on the fact that Gush had five wins, and that's actually only a difference of one tournament. Like, one match is the difference between seven and five. Well, let's be clear. We did not, in (laughs) the
1: data we just all went through, top 16, eight, four, and finals, we didn't have wins in there. So, it's true that if you add wins in, then there's two data points out of ten. Two out of 10 in which gush is actually tied with shops and never outperforms it but tied my point is this and I, I said this again and this is true if you look at gush and shops magic online performance it's clear mm-hmm. that shops has consistent has outperformed gush there's only two of yes. those that's all i'm saying and you said that's uh, okay. that's a question now I'm, there it doesn't it, mean there are it, data it doesn't mean there aren't data points in which they've done about the same or done the same i'm just saying overall it's clear that shops has significantly outperformed gush and and that and it gets i mean again if you look at q1 Steve, it's even more what
0: true what are you going to say if the april premiere event looks like the march one. okay
1: well hold on let me just let me say one of other... <laughs> that's
0: a reasonable it's a reasonable if question the april
1: one looks like the march one then you mean would they have three shops in the top eight and in four gush decks I would say um that the restriction of Lodestone Column was perfectly legitimate. You I mean it, in that in that <laughs> okay. it didn't diminish shops capacity to put decks in the top look what you're driving at is But March you're, March's
0: you're, performance is poor performance for Shop.
1: Let's be three out of eight is not poor performance. That's more than thirty percent. Mean,
0: it's that's, below all the other metrics you're citing. It's not it's, it's not, 30%. not below
1: all it's three out of eight is thirty seven.
0: I'm looking at the top I'm looking at the top sixteen numbers, sorry. The top sixteen Number for shops in March is only twenty. Yeah, I was going to say three out of top eight is almost forty percent of the top eight. It's thirty-seven. You're you're right about. Um,
1: So, I mean, look, what you're driving at is the other argument that people have made, which is not the empirical argument about shops' performance or being overrepresented, but. An objection to well, why didn't they restrict something else like Gush? So let's deal with that in principle and then on the data. Well, okay, no, because that's what you're
0: that, talking that, about. That is not actually my point. No, well,
1: that's that's what my, everything you're saying is driving towards. No,
0: though. my point is not. I am not doing that. My point is about representation. Yes. My point is, is that these data points for these premier events vary wildly. Gush's performance varies from 6% to 44%. Shops' performance ranges from 19% to 50%. The range of results here is ridiculous. Looking at January, there's only one Gush deck in the, in the, top, the top 16, 16 inches, yeah. and it won the event. Yeah. Now, how do you parse that? When in March, when in March there's seven in the top 16. I mean, how do you, this, how do you parse a, a three a, a three months period? It's actually only a two month a, period from a, one. This th-
1: is a little bit of a, what you're doing is a little bit of a bait and switch because on the one hand we've come into this discussion agreeing to look at aggregate data and now you're pointing out a lot of variance. I'm not denying that there's variance from month to month. I'm not denying. Hold on, hold let me finish data, the point. Let me finish the point. Acknowledging the variance. No, hold on. We have looked at data for years in Vintage. We have tournament data going back to 2002, 2003 on morphling.d where we can look at performance over time. There is wild variance from month to month and quarter to quarter. If you go look at my January February what 2008 tournament market report, metagame report, and you look at the March April, the differences are enormous. You'll have one month, one mark month. You'll have shops at you know 20 percent. The next month at 10. Yeah. I'm not. And we're saying, not talking
0: about you know, decisions during. What I'm periods. trying
1: to say is that there is always variance. I'm not denying. You're positioning that point. As if I'm somehow not acknowledging it or aware of it. It's it's acknowledged. It's true. It's always been true. It's true of paper. It's true of online. It's true ten years ago. It's true today. The fact that yeah. there is variance month to month does not mean that we stop looking at aggregate data because that's the only relevance that point has. The only w- uh-huh. look, look what you're basically doing is kind of a nihilist argument. You're saying, look, there's variance from month to month, so we shouldn't what? We shouldn't aggregate data. We shouldn't look at trends. We shouldn't, like, look at overall performance because that's the only possible point I see from that. I mean, look, yes, there is going to be tremendous variance, but we we have to aggregate and look at overall performance anyway, regardless, acknowledging that there's tremendous Mm -hmm. variance. Given that variance, it's clear that shops are the empirically best performing archetype. It's not even, it's not debatable on Magic Online. Now, Mm Now, there are a lot of people who are saying, what about, why didn't you restrict Gush? And I think a lot more people who are, frankly, very poorly informed who say they should have restricted Dark Petition as well. Let's be clear. Dark petition was three percent of the MTGO data and seven percent of the paper data. That doesn't even come close to dominance. It would be ridiculous restriction. Completely unsupported by data. but as for multiple restrictions, let me make the argument on principle first. First of all, people have heard me say this before. I do not believe that wizards should ever restrict more than one card at a time. I think it's it's a huge mistake for multiple reasons. First, when you restrict a card in Vintage, you are restricting a temple card often in the metagame by definition, because when you restrict something that is part of a deck that's, let's say, 50% of fin- de- finals decks, or here we have 31% of top 16s or 30% of top 8s and 42% of top fours, you're making a huge, profound impact in the metagame. It's critical to understand empirically what that impact is and to watch it play out. I don't think you should ever, whenever you restrict more than one card, you're doing one of two things. You're either trying to restrict multiple cards from the same deck, which is what they did when they restricted the five cards in 2008, the, the four cards out of the Gush decks and the Flash decks, or the 18 cards they restricted in 1999 to Stop Academy, Or when you restrict, for example, the three cards in 2000 and, what was it, three? January 2003, when they restricted the three cards out of Burning Tendrils. When they restricted Lion's Eye Diamond, Burning Wish, and Chrome Box all at the same time. Whenever you restrict multiple cards, you're either restricting multiple cards out of the same deck, or you're restricting cards in an attempt to balance the metagame. But it's mostly speculative. If they had restricted Gush, they would have restricted a card that in, according to this data, at least according to the MTGO data, it doesn't even come close to dominance. 20% or 23% of top 16s is not dominance. And 22% in the top 8s of Q1 is not dominance, not even close. So I think that would have been just a speculative, hey, we're restricting Lodestone Golem. Let's balance that out by restricting another card. That's that's completely unprincipled, and it's mostly speculative. Now, I'm not saying that here, here's what may happen. Let's suppose over the next three months... Gush dominates. It surges to thirty-five, forty percent. Let's say Gush surges to forty percent of top eights. They would be perfectly justified in restricting Gush or some other card in the Gush deck. But let's see it play out. If it does, if it plays out, fine, do it. If it doesn't, then don't. But don't get angry because they didn't do something that wasn't empirically supported on the mtgo results that's all i'm saying i i in principle object to multiple restrictions let me make one other point on that point on that argument every single time that wizards of the coast and the dci has restricted multiple cards at once with one exception in the history of the format from 1994 to the present every single time they've had to unrestrict one of those cards at a subsequent point because Take Burning Wish and Lion's Eye Diamond Chromebox. When you restrict multiple cards to new to the same deck, they're necessarily having a duplicative effect right? If you restrict, mm-hmm. you know, the only exception to that is when they restricted Necropotence and uh, Demonic Consultation at the same time to new to the trick stack. Both of those cards still remain restricted. But every other time <laughs> they've had to unrestrict card because it's overbroad. It's not tailored. They're not taking, they're using a hammer rather than a scalpel. So I am completely behind what they did here in the sense that it's justifiable, and I'm very glad they only restricted one card. Restricting multiple cards would have been overbroad. And I don't know why there's this impulse in Vintage to like restrict tons of cards. You should I mean people should be happy they only restrict one card at a time. Let's see it play out. If Gush dominates, well, you know, they can take action. But let it prove itself.
0: So I agree with you there. The uh the notion that they would have to act on multiple fronts at once, and there are lots of people online posting elaborate lists of things to change to shake up the format. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't support that either. But again, those are people who are trying to craft a format. Yes. As soon as you start promoting two, yes. two to four restrictions or changes, you're trying to craft a yes, format. Yes, it's
1: metagame shaping. It's completely unjustifiable. Yeah. Look, look. I want to. I want to be clear about this. And I've often pointed this. In 2002, uh, maybe it in 2003. Oscar Tan wrote an article. It was his. I forget the title of his article series, but it was the 108th article in his series. He asked 10 vintage experts whether they should r- restrict a list of cards from Chalice of the Void to Academy Rector to you, you know <laughs> Lion's Eye Diamond to you name it. There were Illusionary Mask, Misha's Workshop. They asked Brian Weissman. They asked me. They asked a bunch of other players at the time, and you wouldn't believe how many people said they should restrict things like Illusionary Mask or Academy Rector. Like most of the people thought they should restrict. That tendency still exists. Vintage players have asked. I mean, there are our, our teammates and friends who wanted the people to restrict Oath of Druids and all kinds of other cards. If Wizards of the Coast had listened to what people wanted restricted in Vintage, half like there would be 30 more cards on the restricted list than there are today. It's not right. We should be very <laughs> careful when we restrict. I think it's very clear. If history has taught us anything, history has been very, very unkind to people who have called for restrictions in the past— and very kind to people who have cautioned and counseled patients. I think that there's no doubt about that. I mean in the 2003 Vintage Type 1 Championship, Randy Bueller was walking around, and the immediate impression in the room was, my God, Academy Rector's got to be restricted. And it wasn't, and it was fine. People thought, you know, there was time when thought people thought Goblin Wilder was going to get restricted. All kinds of cards. And the calls for Mishra's workshop's restriction over the last 10 years have been, I mean, I can't count how many times people thought it would be restricted. <laughs> 2002, people wanted it restricted. The fact they haven't has allowed the format to evolve. we If, people, if we would have restricted everything people would have called for over... Over time, there would be no bizarre Baghdad, there wouldn't be Mishra's Workshop, there wouldn't be a Mass, Academy Rector, you name it. I think history and experience supports the patient approach the DCI has taken, and this is a very wise decision, for restricting one card, not multiple.
0: Well, we've certainly covered a lot of things here. I, uh, I still don't share your opinion on the value of digital versus paper as, uh, as a decision-making tool.
1: In in what way? I'd like, because my position is fairly I, modest. I'm simply say you look at both. I mean, I think you look at both, and I think you aggregate them, and I
0: think you're saying that you look at both but you're still okay. giving all of the argumentative weight to the digital no, no. you look at the paper okay. and you see it uh, you see w- workshops in second place and you add in the digital which shows workshops in first place and you aggregate so, that to a first place decision so the,
1: yeah so there's only there's a couple possibilities here one right one is that okay we could only restrict a card if it's both dominant in both or overrepresented in both paper and magic online yeah. so in other words those are separate metrics or we say you combine them I don't think that they I don't think that like, like, being in second place on paper when you aggregate paper with MTGO is a disqualifying reason to restrict something. I mean, for example, let's just say...
0: Well, it it does call into question the veracity of the digital results. I, <laughs> does it not?
1: No, it does not call into question the veracity. Of it. The, they are that's what they
0: a are. Very, I think that's a very that, irresponsible so, so answer it, on your no, no, part. Here, here's the thing.
2: So if you when you have say, data
0: sets that are clearly, clearly, and I don't mean even remotely, I mean clearly, dramatically different. Yes. From top to bottom, like first, second, third, Fourth, fifth place. All these decks. The results are dramatically different. Yes, Second place. I completely acknowledge place. that. Yeah, but that doesn't the, call into question. Yes, it does. The scientific rigor that upon looking at those two things it would be <laughs> to say. There is a reason why these things are dramatically different. That is what I'm saying. You yeah. should be asking yourself why are these different. That is calling something okay. into question. Okay.
1: Look, look. What I what the, when you what I interpreted the question that you just posed is the veracity of the data. The data is the data. It is what it is. Its is truth value is equal to what it is. Now, now.
0: That's so, a useful statement, of course.
1: Yeah, of course. It, I mean, so I no, the paper doesn't call into the veracity. What it does is it asks the question. It suggests the question. Why? What is explaining the discrepancy? I don't have a clear answer to that, but what I would say is that, that you look at all the data. To to not have done a restriction here when the DCI felt that not just the data supported overall, but also there were interactivity questions, and, and frankly, I haven't said this point, but there was a feeling, especially on the VSL, which many people have discounted, but there was a feeling among the players that workshop decks were just the best performing. And the data actually supported it. Randy Bueller at one point put together the performance by archetypes and workshops had by far the best, I think, win percentage at one point, and maybe even overall. And they felt oppressive. It felt like, my God, the best deck really is shops. And the best players mm-hmm. playing the best playing shops are just going to win. So, look... T- to, to sort of... I've suggested that both paper and Magic Online are imperfect. They both have their flaws. But to say that the paper calls the question the veracity of the online I think is a, is a claim too far. It doesn't call into the question the veracity of it. it. It suggests that there are differences and there may be, you know, reasons to look at those differences but I don't think it calls into the question the veracity any more than the difference, any more than the, the Magic Online results call into the question the, the veracity of the paper. They're just different. And I think to suggest that the paper is a reason that they shouldn't have done anything would be to introduce into the decision making process an, an effective veto if paper does not align up perfectly with uh with Magic Online. I mean, l- look, there's a couple things they could do. They could say, We're only gonna look at paper, we're only gonna look at Magic Online, or we're gonna look at both, and mm-hmm. and we're gonna or we're only gonna look at both and make a decision if there's an alignment. I don't think that, that last is reasonable. I think the third is the most reasonable. I think to suggest that they shouldn't have done something here, or they were unjustified in doing something here, would be to do make the opposite argument that you were suggesting, which is that we should give much greater weight to paper and ignore Magic Online. I think that's equally flawed. I am not giving much greater weight to Magic Online. If anything, it's only a hair. I am suggesting you aggregate them, you look at them in holistically in totality. And I think doing so, they were justified. Now, again, I don't think it was necessary, but I think it's in that gray zone where it was a justifiable restriction. And anyone who says it's unjustifiable, I don't think that's a vision.
0: Well, I still believe that veracity and questioning thereof is exactly the right phrase. I don't believe that <clears throat> that the Magic Online metagame is vintage. Huh? Well, <laughs> it is. It is missing. For one, the the winningest deck in terms of tournament size. Just completely, it's missing that deck.
1: Well, I would would do the...
0: Both of our Vintage champions currently won with the deck in question.
1: I think that's an incredibly loaded statement that you're making about what (laughs) you mean by Vintage. And I don't think that that's a fair statement because I think that both are Vintage. They're just different expressions of Vintage. I
0: think... Uh, So, different expressions of Vintage. So, hold on. So, how many people would you say are impacted by and impacting the metagames for these two different versions of Vintage.
2: Let me just be clear, because this is a
1: really important point, which you've already made, but I think we need to, if you're going to line up why Magic Online is not, quote, Vintage, I need to line up the counter-argument why Paper is not, quote, Vintage. Because if you, I mean, a Black Lotus Online costs, what, like 200 tickets? Or uh, in
0: real life? A lot of money. Yeah,
1: but look, people can actually afford to build Vintage decks on Magic Online that they can't afford in real life. (laughs) I mean, there are proxy-less events. I think that Magic Online, if you want to have some sort of platonic ideal of vintage, I think Magic Online <laughs> more approximates it, probably by like 3% than paper. So I completely, dis- I, I, I don't even like saying that because I feel like they are both different expressions of vintage, and they both have their flaws. I want to stick to that line. But, if you want me to take the opposite argument, I would say that Magic Online, because of the fiscal and financial constraints that are so problematic in paper, more approximates what a real idealized vintage format should look like.
0: Well, if the economics were the, lead, were the driving factor, then certainly uh, online is far more attractive. But I do, not, I do not define a format by its economics. They influence players' choices, and they do influence <laughs> things, I'll grant you that. But the definition of vintage is what can I play and what pe- do people play? But,
1: the, but the, for example, in paper, people are compelled to play hate bears decks and budget decks. I mean, go look at 2002 data. You have people playing sly and things like that because they can't afford power. Or, I mean, paper, yep. paper tournaments are grossly distorted by economics. <laughs> so... The, the, and the distortion that does not nearly as manifest on Magic Online. I think Magic Online much, much more approximates what a sort of real metagame would look like in the absence of those kinds of financial real work, the reserve limit. So,
0: so I think. Your point, your po- you're pointing to players who are driven to a a underperforming deck by economics yes. and i'm and i'm so that's what happens it, in paper right yeah. and i'm pointing to players who are incapable of playing of possibly the format's best deck because it's not even viable it, Online. And the
1: implication of that kind of argument is that I'm some, somehow, you know, dismissing. Um, look, I, I just want to be clear. I'm saying I'm
0: not I, implying. I, I, I'm, I'm straight out saying yeah, <laughs> I,
1: I, I think they both are flawed. I've said it 20 times. Both pa- paper and magic online have their flaws. They both have mm-hmm. gaps. If, I don't want to, I, I really am apprehensive about saying one is worse than the other. But if you want to line up the problems with Magic Online, which are what you just said—the complete absence of, you know, unbounded loops and the limitations of Dragon, World Dragon decks, and or Ex salvagers—against the flaws in paper Magic, I mean, ulti- with the reserve list and the economics and people playing budget decks in, in, in environments where no, there are no proxies and there are no pe- people would play power if they could. I mean, I think that probably the paper flaws are probably a little bit more significant. And I think that's probably true going back a long time. So,
0: well, it has to be going back a long time yeah. because MTGO didn't exist prior to 10. But yeah. the uh, I think that both environments are clearly flawed, as you yeah. put it. I think that... Um, so you,
2: but you, so that's why you,
1: that's why I you think look at that, both data sets. You can't ignore one failure. Yeah. And I would never let one be a veto on the other, which is what yeah. the... <laughs> Yeah, which is what the argument of the people who are pointing to paper are are effectively saying.
0: I think you. I would not. I would. I would not. I think that's a a a mischaracterization. It's not as though paper results veto the online results. It's that the the midpoint between those results, if you're taking them both into context, is no longer persuasive for action. That's different than paper vetoing. That's just saying that the midpoint is. A not compelling number. I think,
1: that's, I think, look, it goes back to the gray area discussion. I think the midpoint is yeah. within that gray area that, in my opinion, is justifiable action. It doesn't mean it's yeah. necessary. Like Again, yeah. You're framing it in terms of this issue. Either a decision is, is necessary or it's not. That used to be how I looked at banning restrictions. I,
0: I don't see how I'm framing it. I'm using well, the same language you, you are, said. the gray area.
1: But what you just said, I don't remember what the precise phrasing you just had is, but you basically just said, The midpoint is no longer, I think you used the word compelling. Persuasive. Persuasive, right. And persuasive is, again, this is a little bit semantics, but you're saying that whatever the midpoint is— it's no longer mm-hmm. sufficiently – you know, the data is no longer sufficient to justify a restriction. Is that a, par- a fair yes. paraphrasing? I'm saying I disagree yeah. with you. I think justify – the word justify there is the key word. It's subjective. I think the word justify <laughs> in this context um, is that gray area. I think that you – you,
0: Do you think anything in that gray area is, justifiable? is justified? I'm
1: not saying I would do it. I'm not saying it's necessary. I, I just think it's justifiable. I think and I think
0: the mid- – we're, we're, quib- we're quibbling over where that line is. But we've talked about for years that workshops being at 20 20 to 25% is acceptable. I, th- I would think that's probably you true. Think that, think, you think that overlaps with that gray area?
1: No, I think 20 to 25% is acceptable. I think anything over that is probably justifiable so, when you add in all the other factors.
0: The so feeling- what I'm saying is... Depending on how you measure the value, the relative weight of paper versus magic online, you could arrive at a number that is between 25 and 20 and 25 percent for shops. I, I'm a little. You're looking at a 30. Hold on. Yeah. You're looking at a 30 percent number online and a 20 percent number in paper. It's exceedingly reasonable for 25 to be in the midpoint there, which is, as you just said, at the high end, but still at the high end of reasonable. And well, acceptable. you're picking
1: out the lowest digital number when you say 30 percent. That's top eight. I'm
0: comparing. Yeah. I'm trying to compare like. In metrics, 20% top eights in paper, sure. 30% in sure. the daily results. I think
1: probably 25% is probably the lower bound of justifiable.
0: When you add yeah. in
1: all the other data. De- so yeah, it's within my sort of spectrum of justifiable. and, and,
0: so and right look, on look, that fulcrum there. If you're aggregating all results, yes. we're right on that fulcrum, yeah. are That's
1: why I'm saying I think it's justifiable. That's my point. And, okay. and I also think, though, that it's not – empirics are a huge part of it. And I've always pressured the DCI and pushed the DCI to use empirics. Look mm-hmm. at data, but it's certainly not the only story. I mean, again, Trinisphere was not was probably in this range, and yet it was mm-hmm. restricted because of other reasons as well. It was highly uninteractive, yeah. and that's a place where Gush completely diverges. And so people are trying to yeah. make the Gush argument. I mean, Gush isn't even a card you really play until turn three. It's highly interactive. <laughs> So, I mean, it's. Yeah, it,
0: that's true. Gush is not on that uh, non interactive scale, that's for yeah, certain. I,
1: I think we just, before we wrap up this whole discussion of Gollum, I want to say this. I've made it this point before and probably like, probably in our shows, maybe 20 or so episodes ago. The restriction of Gollum, I believe, will open up shops to many more forms. Before Gollum, shops used to be a lot more. There were definitely aggro versions, but they were a lot more diverse. You had the more combo versions, you had the more controlling versions, you had the more aggro versions. Golem pushed Shops more uniformly into the aggro. I believe the restriction of Golem was right for a lot of reasons. I would not have restricted Chalice. I would hope maybe they unrestrict Chalice in some way. Because I like that Chalice is so good as a control card, What it does tactically. But I'm very hopeful that Shops will now have many more expressions than it did when every deck just had to have four Golem. So I think restriction Golem was wise in the sense that if you had to restrict a card from Shops it's probably the card that should be on the restricted list. And I expect... I mean, look, when Trinisphere was restricted, we saw a blossoming of the Shops archetype, and in fact, Shops ended up winning the Vintage Championship. For people Mm -hmm. who are saying, like, Shops is dead, I don't think that's even remotely true. I still think... I still believe that Shops will be a top-tier viable
0: archetype. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you there. I don't think this is the nail for the coffin. I think there's been a lot of hyperbolic language about how we just kicked out one of the legs of the stool or something, and I... I don't agree with that. I mean, shops is still going to be just fine in the sense that there are, as you put it, a number of diverse directions that the deck can go in and be highly, highly competitive. All of those directions have existed in some way, uh, some fashion or another in the past and been competitive and successful in the past. Now, you might say, that many of those required for Lodestone Golems to be that successful. That's not I true. don't believe that's, that's true. true I don't believe that's yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, Workshops... I mean, you have to go work- back a long time before there was such a thing as no Lodestone Golem, yeah. but even then, yeah. Workshop decks was the best-performing
1: archetype in Vintage many times before were, before yeah. a Lodestone Golem was printed, and it, it can certainly be so again.
0: Yeah. <sighs> well, we're certainly going to be following this with much interest. I uh, think there's a lot to be said on this topic, a lot that the data points to, and I didn't even get to talk about all the stuff about how many players were involved in this whole situation, which I think is fascinating. Uh, so for our listening audience, if you want to dig into the data, take a look at the best performing players on Magic <laughs> Online, the three one and four oh appearances. And I think you'll find that a a relatively short list of names is influencing that data, just so you know. <laughs> but anyway, we have got to we have got to talk about the Asia Vintage Championship. you're relatively fresh back from the Asia Vintage Championship. Uh, why don't you tell us about your experience there and how the tournament was for you?
1: Well, Japan is an, is an amazing place. And <laughs> when I got on the flight out of San Francisco heading to Tokyo, the first thing that came on the screen was Star Wars Episode Seven, so I knew it was going to be an awesome trip. <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, the tournament was amazing. There were about, I think, 22 players in the event, and every one of those players had won a tournament somewhere else. Some had actually mm-hmm. won like 100-player plus turns, And there were two Hall of Famers in the event, and myself and Hiromichi Ito as Vintage Champions. And, you know, the meta game was pretty diverse. There were like, I think, seven Oath decks, maybe six Workshop decks, four or five Mentor decks, uh, a number of Bug decks. It was a great tournament, and all... There's some really amazing video that we can share. I had a fascinating match against Shuhei Nakamura in round four, and my top eight matches were, were pretty amazing. Um, I don't want to spoil anything. Maybe I, I should. It's up to Kevin.
0: I think it's safe. Okay. I think it's safe. I ended up point. getting
1: third place. Um, we, if you know, safely, if you look at the um, Swiss standings. In fact, all the bottom four players in the top eight ended up winning their quarterfinals match
0: i very narrowly. you mean the lower seeded players yeah i yeah.
1: narrowly lost in the top four to hiramichi ito because of the play mistake in which he had in play lodestone golem arcbound ravager and Hangerback walker and i had enhanced i had seven mana three lands a mox and a lotus and shattering spree and ingot Chewer. and i played shattering spree on all three of his creatures instead of first leading with the ingot Chewer on the ravager had I done that, I would have easily been able to win the game. Instead, I lost to three flyers turn after turn mm-hmm. before I could get my creatures down and, and attack. And, but, I mean, it was a really easy game to win. I just did not calculate that interaction Properly, And I, I feel like I would have had a really good match in the top in the finals against Shuhei based upon my round four match against him. But hey, I still ended up third place, which is nice. But that's a good showing. Would have been better
0: against strong competition. Definitely,
1: definitely strong competition.
0: And hope. And I think we should go. No, I was
1: gonna say, I hope that players in Japan are more turned on to vintage now, even though it is definitely hard to get power and get those cards. But maybe they can have more proxy events and with Magic Online, get more attention. And Michi Ito is a wonderful ambassador for the format.
0: <clears throat> it's, it's really great. Great that they had two of their Hall of Famers, Shuhei and Shota, performing in this event. I mean, we've had Hall of Famers playing in the vintage champs in the US. Yeah. Like we had LSV last year, which was fantastic. Um, but for such a small crowd, I mean that's a small tournament, an invite-only tournament and to have two Hall of Famers, uh, it really brings just a lot of prestige to the event. I hope that this event is successful, and maybe it'll grow and get—I mean, it shouldn't explode to be 400 players, but the point is, it'll yeah. grow in its support and its excitement and its participation.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I think that would be wonderful. And, you know, it's interesting. They're they both the Japanese Hall of Famers and both the players. Japanese players represented the 2007 Invitational, so I hadn't seen them in, like, nine years. <laughs> But it, was, it was pretty cool. <laughs> nice. it, w- it would be great to see this to be an event every year. I hope. I certainly hope. It
0: well, and I'd like to point out that what Shuhei won with was very similar to what Brian Kelly yep. won with at the U.S. Vintage Champs, this Oriok Salvagers Oath List with Oriok Salvagers and Gristle brand as the, the primary creature package and five planeswalkers. Uh, very similar though uh, that that list is continues to be just dominating high profile paper events, yeah. which is interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know if it's dominating high profile paper events, but <laughs> it's certainly winning here and there, and and in the high, in in the most high profile events, it's doing pretty well. But yeah. um, it's also, I mean, it's true. And Oryx Salvager's Oath of Druids would be doing a lot better, or at least marginally better, on Magic Online if it was legal. So,
0: mm-hmm. I know there are some players out there who have tried it. And and have had a little bit of success clicking through. And obviously, the VSL participants are quick to point out that uh, from a sportsmanship standpoint, uh, lots of players would be willing to concede to the combo at Magic Online. No doubt. I think we we but permitted no. Nope. Yeah, but unfor- so it, it probably is more viable in VSL than it is in a, in a daily or a premier event. But unfortunately, the there's no guarantee that your average competitor in something like a premier event is going to simply concede to you when you start clicking through this. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, the deck is facing a serious uphill challenge on, online, which is the- hopefully hopefully wizards can find a way to address that issue at some point. Well, I just
1: remind folks that in the open letter that Rich Shea and I wrote to Wizards, what is it, six months ago, maybe even longer, mm-hmm. requesting four major changes. That was one of them, in addition yeah. in addition to starting premiere events.
0: I know they've got a lot of things on their plates, but I hope that they can address that at some point in the near future. One other element that we'd like to discuss by way of announcement is, just today, Wizards of the Coast announced a lot of changes to Magic Online, but very uh, deep in that announcement was a comment about their replays that they offer for their Magic Online tournaments. Let me Let me just read this, and then we'll parse it. With the downtime on April 13, players will no longer be able to watch replays of matches or events they did not participate in. This change includes replays for open play matches, but will not affect the ability to watch those matches in progress. Also note that if you participate in a tournament, though not a league, you'll be able to replay any of the matches from that event as long as it is visible in the play lobby. And here's some rationale. As stewards of Magic, we in R&D feel that this action is necessary to prevent data mining that contributes to constructed formats growing stale before their time. At its essence, Magic is best when it's a game of exploration and puzzle-solving. This is why providing new formats and new experiences are so important. By gathering large sets of data from Magic Online events, a given format too rapidly changes from exciting exploration to cold statistical analysis. While the analysis may be fascinating, it generally makes for far less compelling gameplay. This leads to reduced enthusiasm about the analyzed formats, which in turns ultimately hurts not just magic content creators worldwide, but the game as a whole. Now, they talk a little bit more after that, but that's the that's the message there, is they don't want us solving our constructed formats too quickly thanks to data mining MTGO results. Yeah, they also Your talk
1: thoughts? about keeping, keeping formats fresh. Well, I have a very yeah. negative and visceral reaction to this on multiple levels. But, <laughs> but let me just start with the most basic, which is that... In the letter that Rich and I, aforementioned letter that Rich and I wrote a couple months ago, we requested that they publish all the vintage daily results, not just one per day. And they used to do that. They cut back, Precisely for the reason they're announcing here, is they feel that too much data can be a problem. My view is that Vintage actually suffers from too little data. And that a one-size-fits-all policy for all these formats just doesn't make sense. It's like, why would you have a one-size-fits-all when there are different needs? Vintage does not run into this problem of growing stale in the same way. I mean, heck, Vintage is not non-rotating format. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my opinion is that Vintage would benefit from more data. And I think the timing of this is poor. I think it's negative for a lot of reasons. So first of all, I am generally of the view that more information is always a better thing. They clearly do not agree with that. And so we can credit, you know, we can give some credit to their concerns, but I think they frame all the more information in negative terms, but we live in the era of big data. We live in an era of more, I think information of more free information. And, you know, I don't have to be a Silicon Valley uh, cheerleader to say that I think information should be more freely available and and hiding information is just backwards in so many ways. Um, the other thing is that, uh, so the second point is that, while I agree with them that it is a game of exploration and puzzle solving, I think that there's an assumption there that like metagames become solved and then it's the end of it. That's not true. Metagames are iterative. So they have a kind of short-sighted view of their own game that's evident here. Now, mm-hmm. you know, they have a lot more experience with this than I do and maybe there is a problem in standard, but I've never seen this problem in vintage. And I think it's it's a sad it's a sad thing. I think it's disappointing. <laughs> it's disappointing when we need more data. I mean, the whole conversation we just had was predicated on data. And now they want us to have less data? You know, Matt Murray and Ryan Eberhardt have done a fantastic job of data mining the Premier events. But if they weren't able to play in them, how would they get that data and how would the community know it? I mean, community knowledge and data is vital to, frankly, serving as a um, you know, a check on DCI policy of being able to call out and critique and support and, and actually advise, right? I mean, without that data, we wouldn't be able to make intelligent comments. And now they want to take data away and make us less intelligent. That's essentially what they're saying: is they want us to be less intelligent. I I, I find that to be, um, on principle level and practical level, extremely problematic. Kevin, what are your
0: thoughts? Well, I, I broadly agree. I it's interesting because we're so <laughs> we, there are so many policy dis- decisions that we talk about that affect vintage differently than other formats. Right. We, you and I have covered things along those lines many times over, from banned and restricted policy to um, per new printings and R&D, everything. It all affects vintage differently, and this one, ironically, affects vintage the least out of all the other formats. Right. That what they're alluding to here is definitely their formats. For the Pro Tour, definitely there are formats that get played at a high level by thousands of players week in and week out. So we're talking mostly about standard, a little less about modern, etc. I couldn't agree more. This one-size-fits-all bit, I think, is your best phrase out of there, because those issues exist in dramatically different layers of importance and significance and impact when your player bases and your tournament bases are multiple orders of magnitude different. Right. Right. Right um and and and, and your point I, I mean I don't want to insult their policy making right. but I do believe you made a very adequate point about the fact that Vintage is a non-rotating format, and as such, metagames simply behave differently. It's a somewhat self-regulating metagame, yeah, right? It's, I mean, the I mean, whole new idea, printings look, and banner restrictions are impact, but...
1: Yeah, what they said here is, and you, you, there's two points where they say this. They say beyond keeping formats fresh, so that's one of their goals, and then they use the term uh-huh. formats growing stale before their time. That comment
0: that implies rotation.
1: That, yeah, the assumption there is that there is a point at which metagames become stale. And there is a necessity to keep them fresh. Exactly. And so how do you do that? You introduce new sets or rotation. Vintage is kept fresh by multiple things. Basically three things. Mm -hmm. It's kept fresh by one, new sets, Mm -hmm. two, banned and restricted list policy, and three, and frankly far most importantly, metagame iterations. Mm -hmm. Cards come into the metagame, and vintage players maybe have a special perch by which to sort of appreciate this. It may also just be that the larger card pool facilitates more metagame dynamics. Mm -hmm. So we can play oddball cards like many of the cards that we've talked about you know like i can i can bring in ages of the gods when oath of the druids mm-hmm. you know becomes a problem or i can bring in shattering sprees to deal with whatever Void-winner. but <laughs> or void winner or yeah to deal with storm or whatever so you know the point is that th- that there's a lot of assumptions built into this into this explanation that i would challenge yeah. not just not just what they the conclusion but i think the assumptions are are problematic
0: I trying to be optimistic about this. I would just say hopefully there's a chance they could differentiate this policy by format. That might be more well, That's what we
1: requested. That's what we requested, you know, with respect to the daily reporting and they haven't done that.
0: I know. I know. But when you said that, you you made some points about the relevance of vintage and the size of it and everything, but you weren't positioning vintage versus other formats. You weren't saying to make vintage special <laughs> you were just speaking for vintage saying we would like this right i would say if no no i i, I was I, I in my in the letter i
1: said you know vintage suffers from not too much information but a dearth of information yeah that there are fewer tournaments smaller events and we need more data right. so i was positioning vintage no, versus you, other tournaments no you you were point,
0: my point is not you were asking them to make some kind of exception for us my point was you were oh. positioning it as how it, we were benefit from it right in order yeah. to get an exception here, you would have to actively say, we would like Vintage to be separate from these other formats. Yeah, and here you are...
1: have to program all, all this, right. the
0: whole and here are reasons why. Yeah. yeah, so I am pessimistic from the standpoint of, I'm concerned that perhaps they just don't have the resources to even do that, um, and I'm only really speculating because they're accused of having low resources in so many other contexts. Uh, but it's worth pointing out that they have thrown the baby out with the bathwater here. They have they have in, inappropriately lumped formats that don't behave the same way and don't have the same constraints. Well,
1: what what do you think about the print? So you addressed like the the practical side of the mm-hmm. the equation. What do you think about the principles, though? I mean, uh, I, 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 you know, I We're not more. we're not twenty. Well, we're now twenty years into sort of the information age, yeah. and I'm seeing. I mean, seeing on multiple fronts this com- this sort of move to privatize and you know um you know uh pr- make information more proprietary and and it's very disturbing you know I, i'm not the kind of person i'm not like that guy who wants to like free jstor research <laughs> i'm not that far but <laughs> but i mean this is this is like the exact opposite direction i think we should be going and i don't i don't understand it well i mean I, I don't understand why it's happening more broadly not just here
0: i, 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 I... Agree, I think they're fighting a losing battle. They're incentivizing people to skirt the system, right? It doesn't take much to realize that if you want the results from a daily, you go to one of the players in it and say, hey, can we use your account to, to crawl all the results? Yeah. I I don't know how you do that, but I know that people have done it in certain smaller contexts. So... I, I agree. I think this is I think this is tilting at windmills. I think this is you know, <laughs> this is fighting the tide of change in the wrong way.
1: You know what's interesting is it may actually have perverse effects. So <laughs> by by making here's the thing, information is power, information is, is important. Mm-hmm. And by making it less public and less available, you actually benefit insiders more. Yeah. So if you're a standard player and you play in the big events and you go through and data mine it, you have gotten a huge advantage from that that now no one else unless people do that get. Yeah. You know, so. I, it feels like it's actually really perverse in some ways. It's actually helping people.
0: Well, <sighs> I don't know. The the insidious read into this is that it helps professional teams. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. I am not I, I do not believe that that was one of their motives, but I believe it's yeah, one could, of the outcomes.
1: You could hire someone to go and play in every single event and data mine it and it would maybe be profitable.
0: Yeah. You could Yeah.
1: That's 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 really un- unfortunate.
0: Yeah. Exactly. That's that is one of a potential number of outcomes. And not just the I, I don't I'm loath to call it abuse, but that kind of gaming of the information of the system. That's one outcome. The other one is simply the fact that a player who's not on a team can't amass enough anecdotal data of their own either. So if you cut everyone off from the spigot of the mass data, the cloud right. of data Then what you're left with is artisanal data. (laughs) And the big teams are the ones that can amass the most of that, too. So no matter what the outcome is, the the big teams uh, benefit. Um, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist about that. I'm simply stating that I believe that's an unintended or not. I believe that's one of the outcomes. Yeah, I don't like it. It hurts vintage less than other formats. I would hope that we could get an exception for.
1: we've always done a good job of self reporting our own data i mean vintages but this is this is just distru- this, this is troubling especially if the dci is going to rely more and more as you posit on mtgo data giving us less can't help
0: well i think they are incentivized to rely more and more on their mtgo data because they're from a vintage standpoint specifically they, that's where they push the players, and that's where the players are most profitable to them, right? They would rather have one online vintage player than a hundred paper vintage players. Yeah. And so they're incentivized to make I, all I don't of their know. they're incentivized to make all of their policy from the perspective of the online environment and the online customer.
1: Well, I, I don't necessarily agree with you that they would prefer to have one online for a hundred. I, I think they probably want people to play both. Well, they would they would
0: say that they want people to play both. They want well, they want having, a million think, pe- people to play their game every day. My point is having, that from a Value standpoint
1: yeah, i think having the vintage championship healthy is important
0: but uh, see that's not my point my point is not that there is no yeah. value in having the paper customer. You know, my point is from a from have, a shareholder yeah. standpoint i am far less valuable to them than you are that's all interesting
1: <laughs> well keep an eye on this space and and i think you know if if you folks don't like that we should continue to continue to, to really press wizards to give us more data not less yeah
0: Well, Steve, it wouldn't be in a set review without our report card from our last set review. So let's see how we did on Oath of the Gatewatch. As usual, with every report card, there's a number of cards that we discuss, but ultimately don't deem appropriate for vintage. So uh, we have a list like that this time. All zeros across the board, no big surprises for the likes of... Crush of Tentacles, Goblin Dark Dwellers, Overwhelming Denial, Matter Reshaper, Deceiver of Form, Reality Smasher, Storm Chaser, Mage, Dimensional Infiltrator, Hedron Alignment, and Mina and Den Wildborn. Well, I'm really shocked about oh, Yeah, <laughs> no big surprises there. But our audience is used to that sort of thing. There are, however, a couple of double zeros on the list that I didn't just name because we had some surprises. But let's go into those things that we predicted a non-zero amount of, or there were a non-zero amount of. First up is Kozalek, the Great Distortion. You predicted one. That is to say, I talked you into one. <laughs> I predicted one. The actual, sadly, was zero. No one jumped on the Kozilek bandwagon. I thought there might have been someone. But related to this, I just want to point out that the card that I tied Kozalek to very directly was Omniscience and Om- right. Omniscience did just basically nothing at the end of 2015 and early 2016. There have, been, there have been no top eight appearances by Omniscience on TC decks in 2016, but I will say that there is one result that they don't have, which just happened last weekend, which there was one Omni-Oath deck in the top eight of the Asia Vintage Championship.
1: And and the first place
2: of the Geo Power 9.
0: That's right, that's right. And But unfortunately since we since we don't include online results in our prediction methodology uh i was denied any causal spiciness. that's not to say that those people were playing with causal They were playing causal because they weren't i just thought that there was a little bit of velocity and perhaps this would Im- impel people to more omni- omniscience but no not so much
1: well causalex cousin ulamog has appeared in odd oath right uh
0: is that true boy that would be interesting
1: what's the what's the odd oath creature you're
0: talking about void Winnower, i think
1: Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm talking about Voidwinter, yes, right? Yes, definitely.
0: And in Voidwinter was what, the set that we reviewed, right? It was two sets ago, yeah.
1: And we and there was zero that appeared, right? And now it's there are a number that.
0: That's appeared, right. It came up after we did our report card. Next up is Spatial Distortion. You predicted one, I predicted zero. The actual result was zero. So no one jumped on Spatial Contortion, but you and I acknowledged... I think Rich Shea... Shea, Go ahead. You you say that Rich has been playing it online? No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, Our review of Spatial Contortion was tied very closely to the next card, which is Warping Whale. Right. For Warping Whale, you predicted two, I predicted one, the actual was three, so, okay, good, <laughs> yeah, so, in combination with spatial distortion, we, we- you and I acknowledged that one or other of these cards could be chosen in that role, and people right. did pe- people did pick up on the warping whale in some workshop builds as we expected yes,
1: I was going to say Rich day had done so, yeah, so I'm glad
0: so a little bit right. of warping whale action, we might see more of it here or there uh in the future,
1: glad I predicted that one. yeah. <laughs> Because I'm, there are going to be. I say that not out of humor, but, <laughs> but there are going to be some embarrassing moments. Up <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. We got close on a lot of these, but uh, there's there's some eyesores here. The next up is Natural State. You and I both predicted zero, but the result was one. One appearance, and it was the kind of appearance that you and I said, if anyone plays this, it'll be for this reason. And the reason was it was in a hate bears deck. That already had fully three nature's claims and two abrupt, I'm sorry, four abrupt decays in the main deck. And Then they had two Natural State in the sideboard. And as you and I said, the only way you'd play Natural State... You
2: mean
1: mean it had four Nature's Claim main deck
0: Three Claims main plus four Abrupt Decays main. Those seven spells were main, and then two Natural States in the sideboard. interesting And as you and I discussed, the only way you would play Natural State is if you had already maxed out basically on all these other things and just wanted more of that effect.
1: Well, it doesn't sound like this person maxed out on those
0: effects. No, they, they had room for one more Nature's Claim and decided for a Natural State in the sideboard. But it's pretty clear that that was a hedge against Oath. So they just decided for the the more narrowly targeted effect. At any rate, so that does go down as a miss, but a very near one. Next up is Seagate Wreckage, which you and I were both pretty excited about. You predicted four. I predicted three. The result was zero. And I must admit, I'm a little bit surprised by that still, that no one picked it up. I, I don't have much to say I, other than that.
1: I, I'm not, in, in because... Well, I think the reason is clear. The reason is simply because Workshop decks are so aggressive right now. If Workshop decks were to go back to more of, like, a control-oriented, then I think this card would might appear in a couple of Workshop decks. Yeah. But until until then... And I definitely think this card is playable. I think it will appear at some point.
2: Yeah. It just hasn't done so far.
1: It's, it's also a heavy price. To, I mean... Tap something like Ancient Tune to activate this is is not
0: easy. Well, that is an interesting preview of a conversation we're going to have in our Shadows Over Innistrad review. So, asterisk that one, everyone. Next up is my personal favorite, Endbringer. (laughs) You predicted zero, I predicted one. The result was one. There was a there was a single end bringer in a a Eldrazi workshop crossover deck that made made top 8 one time. And so that goes down as a as a very prideful win for me. Unfortunately, it leads to the next loss for both of us, which is thought not seer. Because you and I both predicted zero, but that same deck had four thought Not seers in it. Lost it. <laughs> so that counts as one. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. the The point is, is that uh, the Endbringer did manifest just a tiny bit as I had predicted, but you and I didn't really think thought Not seer would be a player, and that same player brought thought knots to the table. So. A mixed bag there amongst those two. It never even occurred to me when we were reviewing one and not the other that a player would put put those two together in the same deck. I genuinely expected a Metalworker deck for Endbringer, but anyway... Next up is Sphinx of the Final Word. You predicted one, I predicted zero, and the result was zero. um, Well, uh, you already alluded to, I think, part of the reason for this is that there was a lot of development in Oath decks uh, since we did our set review, but a lot of it was uh, centered around the odd Oath build. And players were not, yes. just not looking for other different things to do. Over well, stacker. I
1: think this guy is, is very comparable to... What, what's the Dragon Lord that I think it's comparable to? Is it Dromica. Dromica, yeah. 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 And with one more mana, he gets you,
2: I think, a very similar effect. It's
0: not better. Harder to remove, sure. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> well, we'll see. The future uh, may still hold some action for Sphinx of the Final Word. The next one here's, is, the big, yeah. here's the big the one. The next one is the big one. Uh, Jorian Ruin Diver. You were very excited about Jorianne. You predicted 22. I, slightly less so, predicted 15. The actual was one. A single person. And in your defense, Steve, you know who that single person was? I know who it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It was me. (laughs) I did my best uh, to keep hope alive and i played jorianne at uh, one of the the team series in- birthday invitationals uh, in columbus and i had a great time but i just don't believe Jorian is not right for the current metagame meta game. yeah
1: yeah and the card is busted it, well she has-
0: when she it- when she was good she was really good and when she was bad, I sideboarded her out, which was in most of my matchups, unfortunately. There is still a future iteration of the metagame in which Jorian could be a force, and, and we'll we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah,
1: I mean, when
2: Murpho comes back,
0: jorian <laughs> <laughs> And the last card on our list is Wastes, which we discussed as a possible sideboard opportunity for Workshop decks, especially for the Mirror as it pertains to Ghost Quarter. You predicted one. I ultimately predicted zero. The result was zero. Uh, I do think this has a little bit to do with what you alluded to already. The Workshop decks have been heavily t- tilted towards Ravager-based aggro decks, some Porcelain Legionnaires, some, uh, lots of Triskelions going around, a lot less control. No, Very few Smokestacks and Null Rods, so Ghost Quarter is, has not been as popular, and that kind of mirror has not been as popular. But we'll see. Could still, could still be a, a, an act for the future. Yeah, and I pointed out,
1: you know, that this is an answer to Ghostbore Workshop Mirror. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if, if we ever see workshops go that route, you might expect to see a Waste be thrown in the sideboard or something like that, or just have one main deck.
0: Yeah, so keep, keep an eye out for that, all of you uh, aspiring Workshop players, too. If you're, if you're finding a lot of Ghost Ghostborder in your metagame, it's one thing to keep an eye out for. So overall, lots of onesie-twosie stuff in most of these cards. a big miss on Jorian, unfortunately. But overall... This set, unfortunately, did not have a very big impact on the metagame oh. at launch.
1: Yeah, the second card we, the, the card we predicted would see this, the second most was Seagate wreckage, and it didn't even show up. Yeah. So we're what t- cards actually? Yeah, the cards that actually showed up in more than one copy. The only card was
2: Warping was Wheel. Was
0: Warping Wheel? Yeah. Ironic. Yeah, there are a couple of individuals there. Jorian. Uh, that Endbringer and Thought Not Seer, that uh, natural state. But yeah, Three Warping Whales is the high point for this set. And that was, I think, some people being experimental when it came out. That card is not so much caught on, it's not like it's gaining traction. I, I happen to have spoken to Dwayne Haddocks, who was one of the three on here. He played three main deck at an event that we he and I went to where he was playing one of the, uh, the more tiny robots kind of uh, aggressive workshop decks, and he was, he was not very high on the card after the event. It, it, did not, it did not pull its weight in terms of its situational value for him. It's not very surprising that the card is not caught on for more top eights of late. But that brings us to Shadows over Innistrad. We like to start our set reviews with a discussion about the mechanics or themes of each set. <clears throat> Shadows over Innistrad, of course, is a return to the plane of Innistrad, and as such, it is a return to some of the mechanics from the first Innistrad sets, namely Transform. Transform, or flip cards, as some people like to call them, even though they're not original huh. flip cards, uh, are back uh, with a vengeance in Shadows over Innistrad, and they are no stranger to vintage, of course, Delver of Secrets being the... the best example. And the only reason I mention it here is because there's one key rules change that's taking place with Shadows over Innistrad that will be relevant to Vintage, especially Delver of Secrets, and that is the converted mana cost of a double-faced permanent's back face is calculated as though it had the mana cost of its front face. That's a change from previous rules. What this means is that Insectile Aberration has a converted mana cost of 1 now uh, with the launch of Shadows over Innistrad, as opposed to the 0 that it had before. And this is especially relevant for the card Engineered Explosives, which many people have used to destroy an, insect- an insectile aberration over the years. Also relevant for Abrupt Decay, although not with respect to Delver specifically.
1: I mean, there have been countless times where my Delvers have been swept away with Pyromancer tokens or Mentor tokens. Mm-hmm. So this is a huge change um, as it relates to Delver. Yeah. I can you answer what
0: motivates this change? Well, I think that it, I think it's. From a design standpoint, they don't want... It to be so easy to sweep away these flipped cards. I really think that's the reason. Got it. I, that makes sense. There might actually be cards in this set, and I'm, I apologize. I didn't research this beforehand, but I just think that generally speaking, they don't want it to be so easy to do converted mana cost related destruction, like engineered explosives yeah. or pernicious Deed you and know, similar.
1: You know, there's there's two things I want to sort of, at a meta level, point out here. Mm-hmm. One is that this some time ago, Kevin, I asked you for an example, a really good example of an ambiguity in Magic. Mm-hmm. that has no that, that basically you have to have a rules person resolve one way or the other mm-hmm. but it could go more than one way legitimately mm-hmm. but you can't you can't simply determine it by looking at the rules and then reading the card text <laughs> this is a great example of that where you know look that you know this is something that a rules manager has to define in the rules mm-hmm. it's not something that you can determine by looking at a card and knowing the context Yeah um, you know, they could have gone either way. They could say it's zero because it has no converted mana cost on that face of the card, or they can say it's whatever the original card was, the, the flip side. Yeah. So uh, I find it interesting whenever Wizards changes their decision on this, these kinds of things. And we've seen these kinds of decisions change many times over the past. Like, for example, the legend rule mm-hmm. has changed a number of times, <laughs> you know, it's like... Uh, used to be you couldn't have copies on your side and then there were different rules about what happened when you had copies on your side Mm -hmm. at one point it was like they both die Mm -hmm. you know and one other point it's now you choose Mm -hmm. and then now it's that you can you know it was what used to be anywhere and now it's you know it's just on your side so um they've changed those kinds of rules many many times and it's not as if like the concept the theme the metaphor of a legend actually answers it for you right you have to actually implement it from a rules perspective but i think there's even more interesting thing here and that is from a design perspective how what is it that what kinds of consideration should go into resolving those kinds of ambiguities because they really are, they're kinds of policy questions in a sense. They're, you know, they're prudential concerns that come into play. So, you know, you might, for example, if you're wizards do some sort of test with players to see which is more intuitive, you know? So one consideration might be what's most, what's most intuitive. Another consideration might be what you say, like what's least frustrating. (laughs) You know, it's frustrating to spend seven mana on a card that flips over and then is is wiped away by engineer explosives or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I could see that as well. And some but it's I mean, do they really test that kind of thing with with like kind of focus group level results? You think they do?
0: Well, I I believe that they do, but I'm taking them at their word because a number of people like the Mark Rosewaters of the world have pointed to quote-unquote, what players think, or what right, players intuit, right. or as you said. I'm, I'm
1: asking how scientific that is. That's what I'm getting well, at. Well,
0: I believe that they have some people that they bring in to playtest future cards, and it yeah. might not be a, a large number. I mean, we know the Future Future League is really only concerned with standard anyway. Exactly. But yeah. the simple truth is, I, I bet they have some people come in and look at cards you know, for the first time, people that aren't on the design teams, and they probably put a lot of weight into those people's feedback. They probably have a, a group of people that they really trust. Well, we
1: know that, the, that that kind of feedback has, you know, motivated or explained some of the major rules changes of the past, mm-hmm. like the combat, removing combat damage on the stack, mm-hmm. right? That was the explanation for that is that it just wasn't intuitive, that meaning that people who were picking up the game, it didn't kind of make sense metaphorically, that you would be combating, and then all of a sudden there'd be like a pause or something, and then you could react to it, <laughs> sure, right? sure So um, there there's that level of the discussion. But but there's another... Anyway, so I'm just curious. Not, I'm, I'm l- less interested in what the answer to these kinds of things are than the process by which they arrive at these kinds of... resolving these kinds of ambiguities.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting you point that one out, because I think in this particular case, players had come to... Just understand and agree, not agree so much as accept <laughs> the fact that yeah. the, the the back face never, had no converted mana cost and so or no mana cost and so the converted mana cost was zero. It, yeah, and
1: it, it's not like there had been like widespread resistance to that. Right. I'd never read right. Right, that's what you're saying. Yeah. That's your point. That's,
0: that's my point exactly. But to your point about intuition, so there, I believe that there's kind of conflicting intuition as it pertains to the, uh, a flipped or a transformed card being on its back face because. If you're the kind of person who relies on the information that's visually in front of you, you would use your knowledge of how converted mana costs work, look at the face of the card, see that it has no mana cost, and conclude, eh, it must be zero. That's how mana costs work, right? But to use a more flavorful standpoint, how is it right. that a person like this, uh, the Delver of Secrets... Succeeds in transforming into this larger thing and is somehow less of a converted mana cost, you know?
1: Right, doesn't make the sense. Mana that goes
0: into them doesn't disappear.
1: Moreover, it just like so, take the werewolf analogy mm-hmm. or the Jekyll analogy. Like, you cast Henry Jekyll, right? <laughs> like let's just say Henry. I mean, you cast Henry Jekyll. He's a human, right? Like let's say whatever, right? And he transforms under certain conditions into Hyde, yep. right, Mr. Hyde. Mm-hmm. Well, his casting cost is Jekyll, yeah. not Hyde, so. it I wouldn't do it like that the card should have the casting costs of what it was originally played as, despite the fact that it's flipped. It's still the same thing, it's just transformed. Yeah. Like huh? Henry Jekyll is Mr. Hyde, you know, or whatever.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you're completely right. And I, so I think that there's conflicting uh, choices here, and I have a feeling yeah. that. Yeah, that's
1: that's my point. Is that this is an example of an ambiguity that has to be resolved? Yeah. And there's you know, well, there there's intuitions that cut different ways. That's why I was very but,
0: confident when you asked me why would they make this change because I feel like the deciding factor in this case was likely design space. It probably has to do with. They want to design more cards that rely on mana cost, and it was a a power issue and a a balance issue.
1: Yeah. Well, well, part of what I'm also suggesting is, so in making a ruling or designing a rule for Magic... One way of approaching the, that kind of problem is what is it? What makes sense from the you know the kind of heuristic I just described, mm-hmm. like but another is what is and I already said this. What's most satisfying from a gameplay perspective? That might be completely different. It might in fact be the opposite. Mm-hmm. And so I think your point about and that's not something you can really I think discern from just like bringing in a small focus group. I think you that's something you have to learn over like a longer period of experience. Yeah.
0: Well, and experience being a game designer, like many of the folks in R&D are, you get an intuition about that sort of thing, I I imagine. They don't have to test a lot of things these days because they know through experience or related experience.
1: Well, there is one other aspect of this I wanted to bring up, and that is, of course, the fact that for a long time a magic card was defined by having a magic back. Oh yeah. And this is something that, of course, was first confronted and overcome in Innistrad, but it has implications for other cards. So, of course, you know where I'm going with this, right?
0: No, where are you going?
1: Position. And oh. you know, uh, th- you know, they're defined as not being magic cards mm. not because of the pointed color. Uh, pointed um, corners but because of the gold face back yeah the gold shaded back well if a magic card is not defined by the back then that has implications for for those cards
0: yeah We'll see. I mean, it has that's been in place for a while now, and it hasn't manifest yet. So <laughs> we'll find yeah, out.
1: I've, I've just to be clear, I've always believed that those should be considered. We should consider legalizing collectors edition, international edition. Yeah, it would be a huge boon to vintage, and it's an easy, it's the easiest way to to introduce more power into the full paper format. Yeah, and it's just something to continue to keep in mind in the back of your mind if you're, <laughs> you know, a player or a Wizards employee. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but. Uh, the recent uptick in popularity of old school would also benefit a great deal from collector's edition, wouldn't it? Hugely. Yeah. We'll see. I hope that they're, I hope it's not off the table for them. You know, the comments you just made about the transform rule also apply directly to my next example. Madness is a mechanic in this set, a returning mechanic, which everyone, everyone yeah. knows. <clears throat> There's also a key rule change with Madness that is relevant to Vintage. When Madness first appeared in Time Spiral block, you could choose to discard a card with Madness.
1: Sorry, you said Madness first appeared in Time Spiral block? No, Madness first appeared in Odyssey block.
0: Um that's an error in Wizard's uh release notes, which I was just quoting. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you're completely right. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I am I was just beginning a quote from their from their uh page, and you're right, that's completely true. Anyway, originally, whenever that happens, you could choose to discard a card with Madness to the Graveyard as normal, meaning skipping the Madness ability. Now, you must discard the card into Exile, and the card will be put into the Graveyard if you don't cast it as the Madness Trigger ability resolves. The only choice you have is whether or not to cast it when the Madness Trigger resolves. So this is especially relevant for the card Jace Vryn's Prodigy. If you have four cards in your discard pile... And you activate Jace to loot on his front face, and you discard a card as part of resolving his ability, and that card has Madness, you have no choice but to put that card into exile while Jace's ability finishes resolving. Jace's ability will finish resolving, and then the Madness trigger will go on the stack. But for those of you who know what's going on here, once that Madness trigger goes on the stack, Jace's ability will have finished resolving. If you started this ability with only four cards in your graveyard, you will still only have four cards in your graveyard. That meaning the fifth card, Madness card, hasn't hit when Jace goes to see if you've got five cards there. That is a key interaction if you choose to play Jace for Prodigy with Madness cards going forward.
1: Okay, Kevin. This is interesting. This is, I think, yet another example of sort of tweaking the rules for clarity's sake. Mm-hmm. But also, it's a, an ambiguity. I mean, um, it's obvious that in Odyssey Block, the Exile Zone was not a very popular zone, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it was not widely used. Not certainly not to the extent that it was today. Well,
0: you, you, you mock, but that was the block that introduced wishes. In judgment. Right. True, true. But and but to your point, when when Madness was when Madness but, was, but right. yeah, was first introduced, you're completely correct.
1: It was called the remove from games or you know, whatever. Right. It wasn't even a zone. It was so now that Exile has been codified as a zone, um, And as a resource. And as a resource, more importantly, I think that makes a lot of sense. The question is what sort of implications may be drawn from that. I, I can't think of any. I, I mean, it is clear that the implications, just the grave, there are graveyard implications. I just don't, I can't think of any others at the moment. I think it also means, though, that, so let's see, if your opponent has like a rest in peace or a yog will, are there any implications
0: there? Well, really. it it doesn't stop the Madness <laughs> from happening, and it doesn't stop the card from eventually going to the graveyard. It's more of a timing issue as it pertains to interacting abilities. The only other thing I can think of, aside from the excellent Jace Vryn's Prodigy example, would be something to do with Delve, because if you were trying to work with Jace or some other discard ability and it involved Madness cards, they wouldn't be there at certain junctures for you to Delve. Yeah. If your opponent responded to the Madness trigger, for example... You wouldn't have access to that card in your graveyard to delve if you wanted to dig through time in response to their response, something like that. Pretty corner case, but it's important to know. Yeah. Uh, fortunately for us, there's basically no playable Madness cards in Vintage. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's been a long time since Basking Rootwalla was played in the Survival of Fittest decks. But, yeah,
1: uh, madness was a madness was a really broken mechanic. When it was
0: first it, they pushed first it. when it was first released in Time Spiral. <laughs> they, they pushed <laughs> it very hard in Odyssey Block. Yes, you're right. Yeah, uh, they've dialed it back a fair bit in Shadows over Innistrad. But let's keep going with the mechanics. So Madness is a returning. One Transform is a returning one. There are some new ones, of course. Delirium is a new one, which says you get an extra ability on a card if you have. Four different types of cards in your graveyard. So the Tarmogoyf check for card types. If you have four different types, then all these Delirium cards get extra abilities or improved abilities.
1: What? You, okay, yeah, I was like, what do you mean an extra ability? Like, does my card
0: suddenly get flying or something? <laughs> well, <laughs> no. The, no. I know. I know what you mean. Yeah, it's it's just like picture it like Threshold. It's just the same as Threshold yes. was in terms of giving character uh, giving. Creatures. There's a bonus. Yeah, the bonus a abilities. Bonus, a boost. Giving spells amplified effects that kind of thing um and we'll talk a little bit more about delirium in terms of how good it is in vintage but unfortunately there's not many cards that are candidates for vintage with delirium so next up is skulk which is a combat ability skulk is a creature with skulk
2: what a cool what a cool yeah cool word oh
0: definitely a creature with skulk can't be blocked by creatures with greater power now combat abilities tend not to be very relevant in vintage, as as we've said for many past combat abilities. I don't think this one's any exception. There's none of the skulk creatures in this set are particularly noteworthy.
1: Are there any skulk creatures that have zero power?
0: No. There's one that there's a couple of them that have one power, so they're hard to block, but uh no.
1: Huh. Be cool to have an affinity with skull
0: power. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. That could happen. It could be in the next set, who knows? And the, the last new keyword in this set is investigate, which is quite fun. Investigate means mm-hmm. put a colorless clue artifact token onto the battlefield. It has two comma, sacrifice this artifact, colon, draw a card. Everybody knows what investigating clues are at this point. They've been the probably the the poster child for this set from a flavor and a mechanical standpoint. It's worth noting in Vintage that since they are artifacts... They open up all kinds of interactions with artifacts in Vintage. Just to, a few off the top of my head include Null Rod, which would shut off all your clues, which is hilarious. Uh, goblin Welder, you could weld clues into other things. Tangle Wire, you could tap clues to your or your opponent's Tangle Wires. What else, Steve? Well, it sticks out in your mind... Be- from having some extra artifacts in play. Tinker. I haven't... There you go. Yeah. And Metalcraft. That's a good one. You know, uh, Mox Opal is easier to tap when you've got a clue. Although, Definitely. that seems probably pretty unlikely. But anyway, plenty of artifact synergies in Vintage to watch out for. I, I don't believe that makes the... Uh, Yeah, you-, you
1: could sacrifice artifacts to Archon Ravager, Yeah, there too. you go.
0: There you go. I don't think it makes Investigate especially powerful in Vintage, mostly because there's not a lot of cheap investigating to be done that's on an otherwise worthwhile card. Uh, But we'll see. We'll see. That's it for the mechanics. I think it's time to dive into the real deal. All right. Let's talk about what might be my favorite card in this set, and I'm not alone, the Jytrog Monster. For 3BG, Legendary Creature, Frog Horror, I could stop right there and you'd have me, Death Touch, at the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice the Jytrog Monster unless you sacrifice a land. You may play an additional land on each of your turns, and here's here's the the trick. Whenever one or more land cards are put into your graveyard from anywhere, draw a card, and it's 6-6.
1: Yeah, that's an insane ability.
0: No kidding.
1: This this is this sort of flavor a little bit reminds me of Spiritmonger. I don't remember any of Spiritmonger's abilities <laughs> except I I think it had some sort of ability where to regenerate. Yeah, maybe regenerate. You're totally
0: right, and it had all the same stats, so your your comparison is apt, but totally different abilities, right? This is,
1: by the way, this is not a frog. This is it's it's a frog monster, but on the picture, it's out of the swamp,
0: therefore it should be a toad. I tend to agree, but. Uh, Generally speaking, toads aren't as popular a thing in magic as frogs are. <laughs> I mean, what with okay. things that turn things into frogs and such? I mean, there are certainly opportunities for toads in magic, but uh, what's the most famous example of a toad? Probably chub toad. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> which, the cre- which the creature type now is frog. So, I mean... Terrible. Uh, you know, we're doing a serious disservice to, to toads world, you know, the, across all the plains. <clears throat> yeah. So, Steve, let's talk. Let's do. Let's use our methodology, okay? Three black, green. There's no card that has that mana cost. It's played, but not right now. But there
1: are some. But there, but there are cards that have that five mana cost that see play, like Dark
2: Petition, mm-hmm.
0: and, and so forth. And there are some creatures so, that have larger mana costs even like Dramica is four, yep. four and two designated. Uh, now, granted, she sees play easier because she's uncounterable. So, you know, once you get up to the high mana cost, you get worried about being counterable. So, there's that. So, I would say, in the abstract, this mana cost is playable. It gets, I think, a little more playable when you start to consider what kind of deck would even want this. Because green-black immediately suggests bug, which tend to have slightly larger mana bases, if they, especially if they have access to Deathrite Shaman. So it seems not out of the question from a mana cost standpoint. The 6-6 six, six body is really nice. 6-6 six, six is a, is kind of a nice point in Vintage because of Lodestone Golem and because of what, basically every other creature. I mean, Triskelion has a hard time dealing with this creature. And this thing is a major, major roadblock for something like an Arcbound Ravager. And even for, I mean, it th- gives problems to, you know, uh, a monastery mentor. So I think the body is healthy. But let's not be, let's not joke. We're using this so that we can draw cards, a card. <laughs> our- yeah, yeah. No, this is a combo. And- yeah. Is what this is. yeah. So let's talk about the ways we could do that, right? There's the basics, like fetching and wastelanding, okay? So that turns those into far more value than they already are, which is a lot of value. The next biggest one in my eyes is dredge. Because when you dredge a land into your discard pile from your library, you draw a card. And everyone knows that... Drawing with dredging begets dredging in the yeah, drawing. Yeah, that's
1: insane. Yeah, and dredge, because in dredge, you're going to be able to replay Bizarre, draw a card to get an immediate dredge trigger, then use the bazaar for more draw triggers. The, so that's pretty ridiculous. Odds
0: are, if you can get but a Jytrog... You could Gytrog-
1: play... You could play two bazaars this turn.
0: Yeah. Well, you can play an extra land. That's it, one thing. Yeah. But, yeah. But no,
1: but but if you haven't, if let's say you just dread return and you haven't played a land that turn, you can put one bazaar into play, dredge a bunch, and then the second bazaar into play. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's busted. Yeah. This card is super the win. <laughs> I was
0: gonna say, uh, let I think you and I are in agreement that if you can get one of these into play with a dredge deck, you should have free reign to put your whole library somewhere. <laughs>
1: I just need to figure out, yeah, because this is basically five five dredge triggers post resolving, post putting into play. I'm just trying to figure out is that better than the card that, yeah, or the card that actually sees more play, which is um, the
0: white creature.
1: I Sun, can picture. Sun Titan. Yeah, Sun Titan is the preferred dredge creature. Yeah. So is, is Sun Titan... What does Sun Titan say again? It says when it comes into play, per, permanent from your...
0: Uh, a permanent with converted man cost three or less, yes.
1: Into the battlefield, that's it? Yes. This card is just better, uh, I, right? Why is this card not better?
0: Well, you need something to get started with the Jytrog monster, right? Just putting it into play without anything else. Like if your hand is empty, nothing else happens that turn. So you need an impetus. You need... Another draw or another dredge yeah, or something.
1: But, but how is but how is that different from,
0: from uh Sun Titan? Well Sun Titan has a trigger which goes and gets you another bazaar when it comes into play, and that bazaar comes this, in untapped.
1: But this but this does too. If you have a bazaar in your graveyard, mm. in both scenarios you have to have a bazaar in your graveyard. If you don't have a bazaar in your graveyard, it doesn't matter.
0: I think you're misunderstanding something. This lets you play an additional land, and it says whenever one or more lands is put into your graveyard from anywhere you draw. Okay, so okay. If you're starting I, I from mistaken. no other resources, this doesn't gain you anything.
1: I, I apologize. I, I thought this allowed you to play lands from your graveyard. Oh, no, it's
0: not quite that. <laughs> no, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it just means you can play an additional one this turn. But,
2: right. But there's no denying no, no. that
0: plenty of scenarios could be set up whereby a Dread return on this plus one other action uh, would then start yeah. off a chain of events, right? Yeah, The key card, I think the linchpin in that kind of interaction is the card uh, Dachmor Salvage. Because Dachmor Salvage is both a land, but it also has dredge. And a lot of people have been talking, I've participated in some conversations on the Drain about Jytrog monster based kind of synergy combos. And if you combine the monster well, let's, with
1: let's stay focused on dredge. Well, yeah.
0: But it ahead. is a dredge engine though. If you combine the monster okay. with deck more salvage and you get any other repeatable discard outlet, then you can just cycle through your whole deck. Because you're discarding yeah. the land, draw yeah drawing that, dredging that land back, discarding
1: like, it. Like, for example, if, if the land you, you have in hand is Petrified Field, then you're good.
0: Well, it, because you
1: play the Petrified Field and then you sacrifice it, you get the Bazaar and you put the Bazaar directly into play as your second Yes, that's
0: true. What I was talking about was more of a, a, an unbounded loop, but you're totally right. If you had field to go get a Bazaar, you could probably go off with, with uh, without I guess control.
1: I guess that doesn't make this I guess Sun Titan is better because it, you just have more flexibility it's it's the retrieval from the graveyard that's more important
0: yeah i think so Sun Titan is more of a powerful finite engine and this is more of a an infinite so, engine, so to speak.
1: So I want to go back to this infinite engine. How did you how do you get unbounded? Everything here is limited.
0: Uh, you have to it's, you, can, you have to have this and a repeatable discard outlet. Like the popular example is Wild Mongrel. So if you have this and Wild Mongrel in play, and you discard a Dakhmore Salvage to the Wild Mongrel, you'll get a trigger from the Jai Trog. When you go to draw the card, you can dredge that Dakmor Salvage ah, put it back in your hand and go into That's a loop. You can
1: go instant. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It doesn't have to be Wild Mongrel. Anything that allows you to just, for no mana, discard, then you're good. <clears throat> now, I don't think that makes a good Vintage deck. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but there's some well, powerful things well, to Well, Bizarre is here.
1: a discard outlet, so if you... Sure. If, yeah, and, but you, that requires you to have not used the Bizarre that turn. Yeah, or, so. to
0: your point, have access to something else, right? If, if you've used the Bizarre, yeah. but you're also holding a Petrified Field, then, then you're on. I think, yeah,
1: and, and Bazaar is not an unbounded discard loop no, like, like Wild Roll is. But, yeah. uh,
0: but we, you and I know that functionally you can probably get to a winning position if you get this Jytrog monster plus one Bizarre activation. I mean, that's a high, a high likelihood of success in my eyes. It also yeah. depends on how you've constructed your deck. You and I talked a lot last episode about the Dark Depths transformational sideboards that are becoming more and more popular. This could be an avenue to an even bigger mana dredge deck a dredge deck that wants to play more spells. Instead of having all the pitch counter magic, maybe it plays Life from the Loam. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I haven't drafted up such a list, but it could be that this inspires people to spend more mana in their dredge lists, uh, and maybe it makes you more resilient to some things. Because, for example, the Jightrog monster does not care about Grafdigger's Cage. That whole combo I mentioned doesn't care about Grafdigger's Cage. Now it does still care about Layline of the Void and Rest in Peace, so it's not it's not perfect. But huh. but also make note of the fact that playing an additional land each turn has happens to have some synergy with the Dark Depths combo, which requires you to have two lands in play. You could spring the Dark Depths combo, so to speak, on your opponent in one turn. Via the Jytrog monster, for example. So let's let's
1: switch out a, sl- slip out of Dredge for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really do, you know, I. I- I think this card is very intriguing in Bug because Bug is a is a deck that with Darth Shaman is I think this is actually castable. Mm-hmm. I mean, people play like Tasiger, which often has, you know, casting costs approaching this kind of thing. It's already in black and green. It's big, um, so it's useful as an aggro creature. But it also I mean, just the fact that you could play two double wasteland or double strip mine your opponent is pretty insane. I agree. And, and, and like just think about how brutal the best-case scenario is. Strip mine you, strip mine you. You get to draw two cards, too. That's busted. <laughs> well,
0: I couldn't agree how does more. Come back? It, it, you and yeah. I often refer to bug as the aggro control, you know, heavily disruptive kind of version. But you, it wouldn't take much to push your bug list to a more controlling direction. And there have been some successful bug control lists of late. So it's not unheard Got of already. It. But you're completely right. This plays into the the land-based disruptive elements of that deck pretty powerfully. And that deck, more so than many others, can play the Wasteland game while still ramping up its mana resources. It wouldn't take much to, to add some Crucible of Worlds to an existing bug shell and all of a sudden you've got a deck that can go from turn three having three mana to maybe plays a death right turn four, you've got five, play on a wasteland, draw another card. I mean, you you could explode in terms of disruptive elements using this as a pivot point. Okay. I think yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I don't know, as I said, bug control has been minorly successful in the last year.
1: Yeah, I mean, the way to look at this card is... When this card comes into play, it has two other triggers. It's the, One of them is you may put an additional land into play and draw two cards this turn. <laughs> if you just read it that way, is is that pretty good? I'd say so.
0: You mean if that other land you play is one that immediately sacrifices itself and you draw for that? Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds really, really strong to me. And and we're not even talking about doing anything unusual with our lands, right? That's just normal fetch lands and wastelands. It gets a little bit stronger if you start to add in alternate ways outside of Dredge, which we've already addressed. But look what this card does with Dakfaden.
1: Oh, it's whenever a land goes to the graveyard from anywhere. Uh huh. Yeah, that's insane.
0: Now, granted, we're already talking about. A, no, you could even you can even use list.
1: Liliana. You could even use Liliana's ability. It mm-hmm. just says discard a card from your hand, mm-hmm. right?
0: Mm-hmm. Now you're thinking Liliana's not so hot in our uh, token creature-based environment right now because of her, yeah. her other abilities, but but you're completely correct it it could be that uh, just a little bit of synergy goes a long way with this with this creature
1: that's busted dak faden plus this card is dr- is draw four cards that turn that's insane <laughs> if you discard two lands it's like gosh, well, discard two lands draw two cards you, you don't dr- yeah. you don't
0: draw two though it's important to point out because of the way it's worded. Oh, it's one or more. Yeah, you would yeah. only get one trigger for discarding two lands to that ability. Interesting. That's why discrete effects are of more value because a wasteland draws yeah, you a card to a fetch you This card is
1: this card is, is is composed or templated very deliberately. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is amazing. The nuance on this card is impressive. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, when you get three sentences worth of abilities plus a, a combat ability, that's, that you got to take yeah. care. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, let's okay. So we've talked about a number of possible homes. I. I genuinely don't think i genuinely don't think this is better than say a gristle brand or a sun titan in dredge hold
1: on we still haven't talked about fast bond combos with this card
0: oh wow so this re- this plus fast bond plus Zurinorb orb <laughs>
1: plus crucible is is draw your deck <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah but fast bond crucible Zurin orb doesn't really need any help um
1: well, but but that fastbond crucible Orb does not draw your deck. No, this does. It doesn't. It, thin, it thins your deck. <laughs> <laughs> <But. clears
0: throat> That's funny. Um, you're right. You can thin your deck with a fetch land if you wanted, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I. My instincts tell me that that bug control list that we mentioned doesn't include it's the fastbond best. or Orb. It's probably best with uh, an otherwise decent, you know, deck that could exist today, and then splash okay. in one or two giant trucks.
1: What about a land deck that uses like life from the loam and fast bond?
0: Yeah,
1: Or something like that that's kind of buggy.
0: That could be. That could be more like Legacy Lands that's dis- super hyper-disruptive in the early game via lands and has this plus the Dark Depths combo in it.
1: And every time you cycle Teleria West, you draw a card with this in play.
0: Well, yeah, That every time you cycle that, or you, you mean transmute that, but every time you cycle yes. Tranquil Thicket, too, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Life from the Loam, the card Life from the Loam, becomes it becomes like stroke of genius with this I wonder replay. if this
1: could be I wonder if this could be like wrestle brand in an oath deck where you just win when it comes into play Well I'm wondering what land what land might you be able to Well you'd have to play something from your graveyard right now you'd have to so you'd have to have a land in hand
0: or something in play that hasn't that can be sacked yeah, refetch Yeah I don't think this is right if, in oath
1: So if you were to oath this card up let's say you oath you have 30 cards in your graveyard and you have a crucible in play with this okay can you just win on the spot
0: uh so you could play a land if it was you could
1: the- play two lands and draw two cards well you, you don't you don't draw for
0: playing yeah. them you draw for them going fast. sorry for sacrifice yeah, yeah sacrifice so you're talking about playing two it. wastelands or fetch lands and then just drawing two cards yeah. that doesn't seem right. like a game-winning play no. right there
1: no it doesn't if you have fast bond you could probably draw the rest of your deck though
0: uh yeah definitely and it would only take it only take one or two other linchpin cards to really turn the corner on that but now you're talking about a, like a five-card combo. <laughs> I yeah. mean, if you got Luth yeah. and Fast then I mean, yeah.
2: You could put
1: things in there like Kroson Wreck or Memory's Journey to try and, you know, whatever. But yeah. still not better than Gristlebrand. Yeah. I just just wanted to think, go down that road for a second.
0: It's worth considering. It's also worth pointing out that if you have Jytrog Monster and Oath of Druids and you Oath again, assuming you put one or more lands in your uh, graveyard, you're still only drawing one card from the monster for the Oath activation. So it's not like you would draw equal to the number of lands you got. Just so everyone's clear. Otherwise, Oath and Dredge would be even more busted with this. Right. <clears throat> I I think if there's a home for this in Vintage, it's in a something of a synergistic, land, disruptive land-based deck. Somewhere between, like you said, like Legacy Lands or like Bug Control, or maybe even more like a Bug Landstill list, right? Because yeah. uh, Standstill tends to become more of an obvious <laughs> direction once you start getting a deck that has the uh, sure. of yeah. 25 lands in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a great finisher. Once you once you get to play, if you can just wasteland your opponent twice and draw two cards, how how do you fall behind from there? It's true.
0: You know? It's true. Once you get to that point, this would. Definitely, <laughs> definitely take over and six six body right. It's going to end the game quickly, assuming your opponent has taken a little bit of damage through their own means. It's probably a three turn clock at the most, and if you've been chipping away with a factory because you're land still, then it's yeah. be a two turn clock.
1: And we haven't really talked about its first, ab- its well, I guess first ability, not keyword right. ability, but it has a kind of built-in thing. If you can't get yourself kick started, it uh, it automatically forces you to sacrifice a. Uh, land at the beginning of your upkeep. Right. So which will cause you to draw a card.
0: Right. That's a good point. So even if you have nothing else going on and you pass the turn, if you've only got permission or, or other kinds of removal in your hands, you are going to draw two cards on your next turn. Yeah. And that could be just enough to get you going. And it could be the other thing to keep in mind too is that if you have if you don't have a, a way to go off this next turn, but as soon as you have something like Dackmore Salvage, if you have a Dackmore Salvage in your graveyard and you go to your upkeep, or if you have it in play because of the sacrifice ability, you can sac the deckmore Salvage and then draw a card. But then in your, for your draw, you can dredge the deckmore Salvage. And if you flip a land with that dredge, you get to draw a card. Yep. And you draw for your turn. <laughs> I mean... It it wouldn't take much, even in an otherwise controlling landish kind of shell, to just gain incredible card velocity with this yeah. without mu- without you much know, you work.
1: You just need a little critical mass. Right. I, I can't think of anything that it may, immediately makes it broken, and and fast bond is restricted in the format, right? But it does seem like it's it's very promising in bug. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see anything else obvious.
0: Well, I, I feel like it's not right for the format right now, but there is a but there is a potential version of this format that. It could be right.
1: Why, why don't you pull up recent bug lists? I want to see if this is better than anything else in there. There are two of them from the at least two of them.
0: Well, from which event?
1: Yeah, here's one. There's one. Yeah, this is one. Seventh place was bug at the asian vintage championship and he has let's see his creatures are one creature slash planeswalker, are one liliana four death right for bob bob three snapcaster mage one jace fringe prodigy one scavenging ooze one trigon predator and one Vendilion click and he has seven fetch lands and five way strip so that's a lot of ways to
2: yeah.
0: abuse this card. The, the mana base the mana base in a, in a typical bug list is already catered toward toward this kind of value
1: It's it's a terrible Bob flip,
0: (laughs) but well, I mean you're already playing Force (laughs) of Will too, so (laughs) yeah, not not unusual.
1: No, but it but it um it's a bad Bob flip, but it might be better than Liliana or something like that. I don't know.
0: Yeah, you could be right, and it wouldn't take much to swap a monster in for one of those toolbox creatures, right? Scavenger, yeah. Trigon, Predator, Vendilion, Click. They all have their place, of course. I'm not saying it's better, right. but it, it's not a stretch. You know, you don't have to have Vendilion Click in this list.
1: Oh, and this Kai can't be dismembered either.
0: Oh, that's a good point, too. Wow, that's a very good point. So it doesn't compare well with Plow, but does compare well with Dismember. Well, I think we should get down to predictions here. I firmly believe this card is vintage playable. It's going to take a bit of a brewer. I don't think it has an obvious home. I don't think it's right for Dredge right now. I think Bug is the logical conclusion, but it's... And that's going to be a one of I think, in, in some creative deck builders list at most, at least for the short term. So you, I, I'm inclined to go with zero still, but I won't be surprised yeah, if there are some.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. It, 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 sometimes I've, you know, I've come up with so many different classifications over the years. <laughs> describe who cards are playable. I think I've called it like the cards that are like, we'll definitely see play, cards that may see play, cards that are playable but unlikely to see play, <laughs> you know, fringe, whatever, consideration. I, I think this is probably among those four categories. I think this is like a, a level three, or category three. Yeah. It's a card that I think is clearly playable, uh, has huge synergies. It's powerful. Um, I, I wouldn't predict it to see play, but um, I don't think the meta game is quite right either. But it may be a card that at some point does fact see play. So I'm going to go with zero, but I, I'm very intrigued. We didn't mention it's... Le- we didn't really focus on the fact that it is legendary, but you wouldn't expect a deck to play more than a few anyway.
0: Yeah, I would say two at the most. Yeah, I agree. And you know what card I would compare this best to in terms of its appearances? I would compare it to Dragonlord Dramica, as we did when yeah. we talk about mana costs and at and in according to TC Dex Dragon Lord Dramica has put up just one top 8 in 2016 now i had a I had a handful in Q4 especially after you know especially okay. after uh Brian Kelly's successful uh performance and most of those appearances were Brian Kelly of course but um yeah i think this is a Dramica esque card a good role player that will be really good in in certain contexts next up let's talk about Sin Proder 2R <laughs> Creature Devil, Menace, one of our recurring themes for our review cards. At the beginning of your upkeep, reveal the top card of your library. Any opponent may have you put that card into your graveyard. If a player does, Sin Sinprodder deals damage to that player equal to that card's converted mana cost. Otherwise, put that card into your hand. 3-2
1: well, let's just let's just get through some of the formalities here. Mm-hmm. I think a three mana card is playable. In red, I mean, Wheel of Fo- Wheel of Fortune is at this casting cost. Yeah, Blood Moon and Moon Man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, lots. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, his his stats are fine. You know, um, three two is fine. Uh, th- everything here turns on the ability. By the way, is this the only Devil in the in, in Magic? I don't think I've ever seen a Devil before. <laughs> well, actually, just creature card type Devil.
0: No, there are plenty. In fact, there are multiple oh. Devils in this set. It's one of the. One of the sub-themes of red so, yeah.
1: so so just jumping to the ability so let's just play this out for a second so you've got it in play first of all we have to rotate all the way back to your upkeep Right. then what happens reveal a card mm-hmm. if it's a good card it goes to your graveyard and they take a little bit of damage if it's a bad card it goes to your hand then you draw
0: it <laughs> I don't, right. Well, I, mean, that's, I don't think good and bad is quite the right. Yeah, uh, th-
1: th- those are kind of gross <laughs> uh, heuristics here. But, yeah. but
0: let's put it this way: if it's a land, it goes to your graveyard, right? Because they're going to take the zero, or they're going to take the zero damage. Yeah, put that in your graveyard. Exactly. What you what people have concluded about this card is: if you can, you should construct a deck that has high mana cost cards <laughs> that don't require you to pay high mana costs, right?
1: Yeah, of, and those decks are always really good in Vintage. Well,
0: but hold on, calm down. Force of Will, Gush, Gosh. Ingot, Chewer, um, well, what's another example I'm blanking on? Uh, uh, Dismember, right? So there's enough playable cards in Vintage that fit that broad description, okay? so, But the simple truth is, 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 is you know, does that still make this good enough?
1: Yeah, Punisher mechanics have never been good in
0: Vintage. No, it's totally true. They haven't. And plus, this one, this creature obviously bears comparison to Dark Confidant, and being one more mana... Unfavorably so. Yeah. Yeah, being one more mana <laughs> makes a huge difference there, because one of the ways you want to play Dark Confidant is as early as possible. You want to play Bob on turn one, and then protect and or execute your other game plans uh, after he's in play. And this card doesn't lend nearly as well to that, because turn two or turn three are critical junctures in the current metagame where you don't want to be casting, you know, a main phase spell if, you, if you're if you trying to be a control deck or an aggro control deck. Um, I And the sort of deck that would play this, right, the cards I all mentioned, or the cards that I mentioned, those are Delver and Mentor cards. And Delver and Mentor already have all the creatures they want at this kind of casting cost. Right. So... While I think it's possible to build a deck that properly abuses this ability in Vintage, there's just no place for it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think we can safely go zeros on Sin Prader. Next up, Brain in a Jar for (laughs) two-mana artifacts. So let me read these two abilities here. One tap. Put a charge counter on Brain in a Jar. Then you may cast an instant or sorcery card with converted mana cost equal to the number of charge counters on Brain in a Jar from your hand without paying its mana cost. The other ability is three tap, remove X charge counters from Brain in a Jar colon scry X. Now the reason this card is on our list is because of its interaction with Fuse. And for those of you who haven't heard about this, which is probably not a lot of you anymore, but <laughs> due to the way that due to the way that split cards and fuse cards work, when you ask when a card asks what the converted mana cost of a fuse card is, in most contexts, you get an answer for both halves of the card. So for wear tear, what's the what's the mana cost of wear tear? Well, it's white and it's one R. You get both answers. When you're asked for the converted mana cost, you also get both answers. For tear you'd get one, and you'd get two. In the case of split cards that have Fuse... When Brain in a Jar says you may cast that card without paying its mana cost, that means you're allowed to fuse the thing without paying its mana cost. So if you put your first counter on Brain in a Jar, the first activation, you could play Wear Tear. You could play both halves. At the same time. Ter- yes, as part of that activation. So you could play... F- Once you, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so you're right. Once you get to two mana, though, things get interesting because then you get access to, in addition to Wear Tear, which you could also play because it's a one and a two, Fire, ice. Uh, well, but you can't fuse it though. You could play fire or ice, but not both of them because that card doesn't, doesn't have, have fuse. fuse. Yeah, yeah, but. The real interesting thing is with cards like a beck and call or breaking and entering, those are split cards that have a two on one side and a six on the other. <laughs> and for right. an activation of two, or effectively one mana over two turns, you get to pay this eight mana worth of spell. That's really the reason why this is interesting. So, beck and call means uh, the beck side is whenever a creature comes into play this turn, draw a card. The call card side is put four one one white bird creatures uh, with, fl- sorry, tokens with flying onto the battlefield. So, effectively, four creatures and draw four cards the breaking and entering one just for completeness is breaking is target player puts the top eight cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard so you mill yourself for eight and entering then says put a creature card from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control it gains haste until end of turn what that means effectively is you mill yourself for eight you could do your opponent too but you're building your deck to do this to yourself you mill yourself for eight, and then you can put a creature from your graveyard into play with haste. You could put Emrakul into play with haste if you if you had it milled there. Right. Or Gristlebrand or whatever. So it's kind of an oath variant here. So that's what's on the table for Brain in a Jar. In addition to a whole bunch of general utility and getting to play Time Walk on your opponent's turn for some reason. <laughs> There's lots of weird things that happen when you can play Sorcerers on your opponent's turn.
1: So just to be clear on fuse, cards yeah. that have fuse, there's no additional cost. It just means you can play either side. Or both, yes. So so it, it means like if you wanted to play Beck and Call, you could pay you would normally have to pay eight mana to get both. But yeah. with this card, you you get to two charge counters and you can play call for two for yes. just one activation. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Got it. So It's confusing and I encourage our audience, we're not giving a great explanation here or a complete one. I encourage our audience to read up on the issue because I had to myself. It's confusing, but the long and the short of it is you could put together a Brain in a Jar-based deck that had some Beck and Calls in it or some Breaking and Enterings in it, depending on your Are those the best ones,
1: in your opinion, of all the Fuse cards? How many
0: Fuse cards are there? Twelve or so? Well, yeah, there's about about ten or twelve, and I do believe those are the best ones. The next best candidate—because Wear and Tear is good. It's an already playable vintage card, of course— the next best candidate is probably catch and release. That's a three slash six that allows you to gain control of a permanent and then sacrifice or make people sacrifice permanents. But at three, you're talking about three turns of activating brain in a jar. And that's pushing it, I think, in terms of whether or not you can ex- expect this trick to work. I think that getting to two <laughs> and getting one of the clever fuse activations at two is probably the zenith for this card.
1: Yeah. So so this is kind of like a little bit of a Isochron Scepter, except it plays the cards from your hand, so you don't have to exile a card. Right. Um, it also means that because you're get, you have the card in your hand, you can use the card at a later point, whenever you want.
0: Um, uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, the brain in the jar still has you cast it, so it leaves oh, okay.
1: your hand. Oh, okay. I wasn't clear on that point.
0: Okay, Yeah, it's, it's not copying the card in your hand. It's allowing you to cast it. Got it. So the card does still leave your hand normally. Got it.
1: So I guess the question is, does this allow you to cheat enough on mana with like a one or two activation here to justify playing this card and then spending the time to use this? And of course yeah. you need to get a card in your hand. And then on top of that, there's the conditionality of having to get one of these Fuse cards into your hand. Yeah. So the best Fuse card, you say, is, I, I can't imagine that Wear and Tear would justify it because there's very few no. matchups where you need Wear and Tear.
0: Right. Um, Those are basically It's basically a split card. Fusing yeah. Wear and Tear is, is not its primary utility no
1: nor would you need to use one activate brain in a jar to cast where does that make Uh, does it make the card count uncounterable like illusionary mask used to no No. it does not
0: you're still just casting it you're just cheating the mana cost
1: yeah so there's not there's no advantage to that so the only advantage would be one of these cards that has an enormous one of the sides has an enormous cost and you
0: said Mm -hmm. the best candidate is what well, the two best candidates are Beck and Call, which was basically put four one ones into play and draw four cards. Right. That's the that's the if that's you fuse that. That's good. Yeah. That's I mean that's good for two mana. That's why it doesn't cost that. Right. Uh, and then breaking and entering is mill yourself for eight, and then if you've got a creature in your graveyard, put it into play with haste. And so you also that's more catch of catch an and release, but catch and release. Yeah, I think that's I think that's on the outskirts. I think the three cards. Yeah, the first three cards are really where it's at. And you can't, It's as you put it, you you can't fill your deck with <laughs> these other cards, right? You can't right. play four Beck and Calls and four Catch and Release. Also, you would want to build, you would try to build your deck such that there would possibly be a reason to cast one of these cards without the Brain in the Jar. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is that Beck is a playable card in a vintage Elves-style deck, like Glimpse of Nature. You can just play Beck and then play a bunch of creatures, and draw cards. That's a totally reasonable line. V- Vintage Elves is not a top performer by any stretch of the imagination, but. That would probably be maximizing it. The problem is, is in a deck like that, Brain in a Jar has relatively few targets. It, you, you want Brain in a Jar in a deck that's got a number of instants and sorceries in the one, two, and three range, so that you could get some utility if you don't draw one of your fuse cards. Because otherwise, you're paying two colorless and then another colorless just to cast Preordain or, <laughs> or yeah. Brainstorm. I mean, you're yeah. not getting any value. Well, I mean, basically,
1: to get to any of these two two, uh, two mana fuse spells, you have to have you have to pay two mana. For brain in the jar, then you have mm-hmm. to pay two mana to add charge counters, and then you need yet. Three turns. Because you need the turn that comes into play and, and add uh-huh. a counter. Then you need the second turn to add a second charge counter
0: and then th- you only, it's it's the next turn that you would get the two right, mana. So one. right, so you need to have it yeah. play
1: for a full turn before you can get, get the and second. activate,
0: it, and twice, activate yeah. it
1: twice. Yeah. So that's a so, you have it, to, that's at least a four mana investment.
0: We we often talk about two mana cards, especially if they have generic mana in their cost, as being turn one plays in vintage, right? Not you here. play your land, you play your mocks. Yeah. You could play brain and sure. in a jar on turn one, but you still need another mox in order to activate it that turn. So you kind Kind of not getting the the cheat on mana Cost at two that you would like. I I think this is interesting. I think if if they ever make another fuse card, yeah. where half of it is a good card in vintage and the other half is ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> ridiculous good yeah. or powerful, then, then we'd be on this. But right now, yeah, Beck Call and Breaking and Entering are not that thing yet. I do
1: I I mean, look, four creatures, four tokens in play, and draw four cards is pretty sweet. There's no doubt it about is. that. But that's a pretty hefty investment for that. That I mean, for two men and standstill, you get the you get three cards. Here you yeah. have to pay four mana to get four cards, which is like a bad concentrate.
0: But, well, look, I, yeah, I mean, you're and, right. And you get, I mean, it's distributed over time, so it's not and all at once. And you do get, you do get one of that mana back because you are the, the when you activate this the first time, you're getting one mana's worth of spell out of that. You're casting a preordain or you're sure. casting something. Yeah,
1: it, it's and you can get that in right. You get that another point, yeah.
0: but it's it's
1: and you get four tokens out of it but i don't think that's quite ridiculous enough to be something that's actually <laughs> like maybe if it said like like draw six cards and six tokens then we'd be getting closer let's actually let's do that let's hypothetically ask take this card how many cards and tokens would you have to draw to make this a viable combo off the top of your head kevin
0: so cards and tokens are are such a strangely no, let's co- different let's combine it though. So scale yeah.
1: scale up. What's the name of that, that side of the card? Uh, sorry, it's um back and call. Scale up yeah. call. Make it call. Yeah. How many how how many
0: tokens? Let's see. At five five one ones could conceivably race because they have flying. So it could yeah. conceivably race a workshop aggro draw and they could conceivably if you're getting it on turn two, you might be able to race a mentor in yeah. that they couldn't block. And, it. So that's a and you get five cards out of it. And you get five cards out of the deal. That sounds pretty but the, good. But you'd have to have both these cards basically, effectively in your opening hand. Right. And so, right. And so that's, that's only going to happen... Yeah, that's going to happen like 20 or 30% of the time. rest of the time,
1: you're just going to be throwing Beck out there for probably one draw. So it's not... It's basically... Beck is basically dead the rest of the time.
0: Yeah. It's a it's, dead card. So. If It's blue. It pitches to force. That's about all you can yeah. say about it. If you're going to do... If you had an... If you had a number of creatures in there, let's let's position a deck. Let's say it's a a bug aggro deck. Yeah. So it's got a mixture okay. of creatures and instants. It's got your it's got some preordains and some some. Uh, uh, you got ponder. You got your restricted cards, but then you've got uh, let's say abrupt decay. So you've got. Ones and twos in terms of spells. And then you've got a fair amount of creatures and deathrites and snapcasters and such, such that your call or your Beck, excuse me, is not totally dead. <laughs> like if you never drew a brain in a jar, you could play Beck and then play a deathright shaman and draw a card. Well, well, well,
1: one thing I think that's clear is that why would this just be better than Time Vault, Key Vault? So you're going to probably have to play with brain in a jar like four brain in the jars and four back and calls. So you're building your deck kind of around it. So like let's take an extreme. I mean you're scaling it up like incrementally. But mm-hmm. what if call was ten mana and said put 10 one one white tokens into play white flying yeah. white tokens would it still be good enough I'm not sure because like brain is so brain and jar is so vulnerable and and you still so conditional I mean it's like like you know it can be revoked it can be pith needle it can be destroyed yeah it can even be count- it can even problem. be countered it can be fluster stormed so I mean it, you know it's just
0: I'm not persuaded on that I just thought of a new best case. I think the new best case might be in a, uh, a deck that has Omniscience. And I know that I've gotten into trouble in the past for making that <laughs> equation. But let me just point out that with Omniscience, you could cast your beck and call also. Yeah. So, with, I mean, I
1: guess Omniscience would allow you to do that. But then why? Why? Yeah, exactly. Why? You wouldn't need brain in a jar. So it would just be...
0: It would be like some somewhat like more copies of Omniscience. There's a there's a minor value you get out of this for cheating on mana. Yeah. So that's, you can the, cast that's not the minor your, value. That's
1: the that's what we we're proposing here.
0: No, I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry. I didn't mean I meant yeah, you you're you're right. Quantity is is what I was alluding to, but what I should have meant is Color quality. Ah, you can cast your abrupt decay, for example, off of Turned you know in a, a soul ring, yeah, a soul ring and a sapphire it's and so an island. And you cast abrupt decay with this. Interesting. So there's a, a bit of value in a, a three or four color deck there, yeah, or more. Yeah, it's good with um. Oh, no, it's. I was gonna say it's good with a with ancient grudge, but it doesn't help you cast the flashback. No, because you need to have it in your hand. Still, yeah, yeah. If you're if you're a four color deck and you're trying to shoehorn in some ancient grudges into bug, for example, which we've seen some people do, then this helps you there. But. I, Deathrite so, Shaman is better at helping you that do that anyway. If
1: Call put 10 creature tokens into play, I still am not sure it would be good enough because you'd have to build a deck with four of each of them and they would mm-hmm. still be vulnerable to all the typical things that we talk about. It may be good enough, but I, I just don't see that as an obvious to me. And if it's not obvious at 10, it's certainly not good yeah. enough at 4.
0: Little, you know, it's, the, count, the counterspell aspect of this... <laughs> you play Brain in a Jar, you activate it once to get a preordain. Your opponent looks at you and says, "Okay, that was fine." Yeah, you've you lost. activate it a second time and you put Beck Call on the stack and your opponent just says Force of Will. I mean, this card is inherently it, disadvantageous. Yeah, it, it it in theory you have more mana to fight that fight cuz you only spent 1 on your second or third turn to activate the jar, so there's that. You can fight back with with mana drains or fluster storms, but I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's too much work. Yeah, I don't, th- I don't necessarily a, think it's the- too
2: much work.
1: I just think it's it's too card disadvantageous and not enough upside to justify yeah. the kind of deck design constraints that we'd be proposing here.
0: And taking an ar- and making an artifact as a go-between between your sorceries and instants opens you no. up to just about yeah. all the disruption in Vintage. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, let's be clear. This is an artifact that's a go-between between your hand and the stack. That's what it's doing. Yeah, <laughs> it's an I- yeah. intermediary to the stack that, that has only an advantage when you're doing these kinds of split you fuse cards.
0: <laughs> right, it makes you vulnerable to, as you put it, revoker, null rod, needle, dak faden, abrupt decay, yeah. plus all the counter spells. Yeah, no, I think it's too. I think it's too much. So can I put you down for a zero? I'm down for zero. Let's move on to Drownyard Temple, which is a land that taps for Colorless. Add C to your mana pool. It also has the ability 3 colon, return Drownyard Temple from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped. I think this is really a fascinating card. This is super fascinating, yeah. I think it has myriad applications, but the first two I thought of are in Workshop decks as an attrition uh, card advantage engine from a permanent standpoint and in dredge decks from just a a value standpoint. Sorry,
1: sorry, can you just explain what you mean on the workshop point? You mean like sacrificing it to Smokestack and bringing it back every turn? What are you saying?
0: Yes, that's an example, sure. It's also a land that your opponent... Um, can't, uh, frequently will not be able to profitably waste, well, right? Yeah, I
1: mean, you, you would never waste this thing. Well, I mean, pay, unless but... it was
0: their only land, right? Yeah. I mean, there's reasons to do it still, but it's yeah. not profitable in the long run. And yeah, Smokestack is the best example, I would say, in terms of... It affects, it, it's own it's mini Crucible of Worlds, of course, Yeah. but if you can't find your Crucible, or you just want to be heavily redundant in that department, then this... Oh, plus this is uncounterable, right? Yep. So if your Crucible got countered, you still have a way to maintain a Smokestack in one just with three mana yeah
2: sorry so, so
1: that makes sense i just wanted to be clear yeah. on the workshop point point. and then you were saying
0: dredge in dredge it's just a, a potential value card yeah. along the lines of a uh, deck more salvage and the riftstone portal in the sense that you get some value out of lands in your graveyard sure, sure. uh it seems less likely there just because dredge decks have better things to do than three pay three mana. yeah yeah i mean they're they're playing thespian stage and dark depths any any other I'd places say, like that you're you. thinking about? Not in the current vintage scape, no i well, mean if you wanna if you wanted a colorless land that was immune to wastelands, you already have access to waste, yeah, and you already have access exactly. to basic land steel citadel. <laughs> Yeah, and Anders in a destructible land too. So if being immune to wasting, yeah. this is far on the list.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was I was going to break up the Darksteel Citadel point. Yeah, that's a card that hasn't seen a lot of play recently, but it's still out there.
0: Yeah, it, on the fringe. It's,
1: it's lurking. Uh, and and Darksteel Citadel also has the advantage or disadvantage depending on the circumstances of being an artifact.
0: <laughs> right. So it's shut off by Null Rod. Shut off by
1: Null Rod, but yeah. it, it means you can weld it out. It means it's yeah. infinity. It means you can sacrifice it to Arcbound Ravager, which is no small thing.
0: That's no small thing. Uh, uh so. So it seems the the yeah. primary use case here then is a per, as a permanent. A way to gain more permanence,
1: and like with the shop mirror, or some way. But I think in yeah. the shop mirror, three mana is so so big. I mean, buried ruins activation is like what two?
0: It's two. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and you get an, an artifact out of it. Um, and with crucible, you already have a significant amount of land recursion. The question is, is this kind of give you like a little? I don't know how you put it, exploration effect or
0: something. Or that's explore. true. Or you know, I, I just um the other thing. But the workshop t- decks don't really have a way to do that. Yeah, and it would require into, some milling.
1: Yeah, this comes into play tapped. It also is three mana, and when your biggest source of mana is Workshops, and your second biggest source of mana is Ancient Tomb, that's yeah. not a very attractive proposition. I don't see this being very profitable in Shops or Dredge. big question I have in my mind is, is there out there some sort of infinite engine where you could go with this, you know, where you generate mana and you can get some sort of CIP ability? So I'm thinking, like, Lotus Cobra when lands come into play, you get additional mana. Can you go mm-hmm. infinite with... So if you have two Lotus Cobras in play, and, <laughs> and you activate this, it's mana neutral. And then if you can sacrifice it to something, you can go infinite, right? Uh, no, 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 you need to have hold three. On. You need, you need three. three
0: Lotus yeah. Cobras to to be mana neutral. <laughs> well, yes, three Lotus Cobras and Zurin Orb plus this is infinite life.
1: <laughs> right, so I'm just wondering, is there some sort of <laughs> CIP with land that could be profitable with this? It's not coming to mind, and it's probably way some sort of Rube Goldberg contraption. <laughs> uh,
0: (laughs) Yes, I think Rube Goldberg is probably (laughs) the appropriate comparison. Oh man, we should chalk up Rube Goldberg along the. I mean, that's that's um. It reminds me of the Mystifiers from from Alpha and Beta, you know. Yeah,
1: there are a lot of those in potential in the vintage card pool. Uh, you know, I, I'm just I'm seriously trying to think. What is the is there a, a CIP when a land comes into play you draw a card? I'm sure there is. I just don't know what it is off the top of my head.
0: Uh, I I'm you're sure you're right, but I can't think of it either. We've had the, uh we've had this kind of uh, brain fart before in the past. The most uh, the most Far and away, the most playable vintage landfall card is Bloodgast. Yeah, right. Yeah. So there is a there is a potential engine there. If there was a way for you to sack the Bloodgast and this for some similar value, yeah. you would get them both back for the three mana. So there's there's that. There's really no other landfall card that sees play in vintage. Um I mean Lotus Cobra counts but it's been it's been years it now. It's definitely seen Cobra play in the past. Play. It could always return
1: yeah. at the right moment, I think. Yeah. But that moment's not right now.
0: Right. I mean you can get there's landfall cards that let you mill, there's landfall cards that do give you life like the Jotty Offshoot um from let's see saw play in standard. Um and you get mana from the Lotus Cobra and you get creature back from the Blood. And you can't gas. think
1: of getting cards out of well
0: or
2: scries even would be fine. No,
0: there there is an artifact. I don't know about the scry. There is an artifact that gets you a draw with a landfall, but you have to pay two colorless. Yeah. It's the Seer Sundial. Yeah. So that's just landfall whenever if you play two colors, you draw a card. So, but that puts this loop up to five mana. <laughs> so if you clone your <laughs> no okay. Uh, I I really don't think... I think there is an engine out there. I really don't think such an engine is efficient enough to be vintage playable.
2: Yeah, I want to,
1: like, tuck this card away in my long-term memory. So if at some point something ever arises, we'll have it there. I just don't see any immediate or even far-reaching applications. I'm zero, but it's...
0: And and Crucible is already widely played and so much better at this effect. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, with
1: Crucible, you get, like, really useful lands immediately. I just don't see you needing the additional boost of the explorer or the you know, exploration of getting one more land drop with this. And, and even in Workshop decks where you would get that, it's not like you're doing much with it anyway. Like, it's not until yeah. the next turn do you actually get to use it. And then it's just one minor. Exp- you would never include this over. I mean, look, Workshop decks have so many great Colorless mana producing lands that they have at their disposal. But they can't right. include the ones they have. You know they're right. there. So uh, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I, I wouldn't use this over wastes, for
0: example. The wor- workshop decks, their cup runneth over as it pertains to good lands. Definitely. Zero. <clears throat> Let's move on to Air of Are Falcon. Are you officially Wath. on zero? <laughs> I'm officially on zero. Air okay. of Falcon Wrath is one B creature vampire. Discard a card. Colon. Transform Air of Falcon Wrath. Activate this ability only once each turn. She's two one. On the back side, Air to the Night. <laughs> She's Delver of Secrets. Is creature vampire it's, berserker yeah, flying to. A-
1: a- Air to the Night is insectile, aberra- uh, insectile aberration in black. Yes, it, precisely. The vampire
2: berserker. <laughs> uh,
0: so, what you. Yeah, so exactly right. This is in here because of the Delver comparison. And what you've got here is a Better 2 body. mana, yeah. Big, yeah, bigger front side that is um, far more reliable, uh, you know, at face value, far more reliable to flip. Whether or not it's worth it to do it because it's card disadvantage is another matter at all. But you're going to be able to do it almost every time. Well, it's
1: interesting. I was working on editing the Gush book and I was thinking about the conditionality of Delver again. And, and it's interesting that, you know, on the sort of, if Delver were printed just today and you're looking mm-hmm. at the conditionality, you I think that's probably one of the reasons it got this dismiss is because you have to be able to reveal an instant or a sorcery to flip it and that Mm -hmm. you know in a deck that's i don't know a random blue deck you're probably (laughs) that's like a 50 50 proposition right without any at best without any manipulation at best um that's fairly conditional this thing you know so a delver could sit out there for a couple turns before it flips this thing can yep. flip immediately in almost any situation. Yep. That's pretty sweet. So you can go from two to two mana. It becomes a two mana, three, two flyer if you throw one other card out there. So Reliably. I think, I think what I, the point I'm trying to make is that this is less conditional dealt, but oh, yeah. it's a steeper cost. <laughs> um, and so the question is obviously where you're headed with this is um, what could you discard and how can you discard to make that profitable, right?
0: Yeah, and the first the reason this card exists, of course, is because of the Madness theme in Shadows Over Innistrad. And Madness, as you and I have alluded before, has not really ever found its home in Vintage, um, with a couple of historical well, exceptions yeah, throughout Odyssey Block. <laughs> there, there, but, I mean, yeah, there have been some it, it has not become a pillar of – yeah, it was never a For pillar sure. of the format speak. <clears throat> You could make well, the case that certain cards are worth it discarding. Does, it's not
1: just Madness, right? There's Flashback and, right. And, and other things like that, but yeah.
0: So you Turn the disadvantage dredge. into neutral if you discard uh, an ancient grudge, for example. In
1: 2006, all the dredge decks that we played had putrid m as a one mana creature because yeah. it was before. It was before a lot of the things that now exist, and so
0: you could immediately before dis- sphere, uh, serum powder, most notably. Yeah,
1: so you could <laughs> discard. You know, you could discard all your Icarids, your ashen ghoul, all the dredgers immediately. Now this yeah. does have the limitation; you can only use this ability once per turn. So, <laughs>
0: so if you were thinking about making some kind of value engine about filling your your graveyard. This is poops that right from exactly. the start. <laughs> um, I, I really don't think that I was even if that. it didn't have that 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 clause. I really don't think that was destined to happen. But um, so, so perhaps like you're a simple am- grave
1: crawler. You could discard something like that, right? It,
0: true. Yeah. Pl- There's plenty of creatures that can come back by themselves that you could get some value, modicum of value out of. And I don't think that, to your point, (laughs) you brought up Putrid Imp, I don't think that Dredge decks want or need this effect. And if they did, they could get it for cheaper than two mana. And also this creature is not very interesting besides. Yeah. So I guess the question is, is there a probably multicolor... Mid range <laughs> value kind of deck, like four colored Delver that wants this plus Ancient Grudges?
1: I, I don't think so, but there is one other point I just wanted to make. This card would actually be better if it cost one black and was a 1 1. Oh, yeah. It, it because, I mean, so the fact that it actually has slightly enhanced stats is actually at a cost
0: that makes
2: it worse. <laughs> yeah,
0: in vintage, that's a major drawback. Yeah. But, if this but costs, I, yeah, go ahead. I agree with you, but I would also like to caution that Delver decks have been constructed around the card Delver, you know, to a fault. Right. And it's possible to construct another aggressive deck that plays all the Moxin, which would somewhat mitigate sure, the sure. increased cost here, but only a little bit.
1: Yeah, I just don't see you playing that. I mean, there's other flashback cards that you could use, like Cabal Therapy, but I just don't sure. see this
0: getting a lot of value unless there was some
1: really good flashback that we could use, or like, you know, Consistently, or Madness. I mean, I just don't see us discarding Basking Root Walla to this, you know, it's like...
0: <laughs> okay, so w- let's assume that you're talking about some kind of Grixis or four-color Delver-style deck. You're going to be playing with Gush. So,
1: yeah, I guess you could gush and discard a land, as superfluous land, but... Mm-hmm. It's,
0: so if this is a turn 2 play, if turn 1 is Preordain or Delver, and turn 2 is this... And then turn three is on curve, gush, play <laughs> one of the lands, discard the other one and attack for three. You're just gonna hit a
1: situation where you like have to discard like a mental misstep or a fluster storm and it costs you the game and you immediately cut this card.
2: I just <laughs> I just don't
1: I just think people are gonna test this and be disappointed. I don't think it's gonna show up in a gush deck. I think if this is gonna show up, it's gonna show up in a deck that is more like a Dark Times kind of deck. Like
0: a, That's a good point.
1: Yeah. Something like that. And that's I, a good point. Um, but you need to right profit. now, you need to really profit from the discard. and I just still don't see how see how we do that.
0: So maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe this goes into more of a dark times uh, Wait, agro you know loam could, with depths.
1: Yeah. You, did you say agro loam?
0: I did. Yeah. That's where I,
1: that's where I was going next. Maybe that's where this this thing is makes the most sense. It's kind of with life from the loam
0: and perhaps more of a Jundi type list with loam and with. Um, punishing fire and grove of the there burn you go.
1: there's a combo that will work with this yeah
0: so you can profitably get your grove the burn or your punishing fire back yep but then again that deck already has access to i don't know wild mongrel or something that would probably be more potent than this in the long run who okay, knows uh, and and we're talking about a we're talking about a, a rare deck already but this does give that yeah. deck a way to... Yeah, I, think we, get I think we just
1: sketched it out. You got your Punishing Fire, Air, Air of Falcon Wrath, uh, what else? Life from the Loam. Life from the Loam deck, yeah. <laughs> and,
0: and, and, you know, Thespian Stage Dark Death. <laughs> No, that's that's go.
1: interesting actually because Thespian being stage Dark decks definitely definitely has synergy with Life from the Loam in the dredge aspect, and you have you have you can come at it from two angles, right? You can wait to uh-huh. assemble the combo, or you can just go, you know, Punishing Fire plus this is not a it's not a slow clock.
0: No, that's true. Yeah. I it, Steve, we're woefully we're woefully irresponsible. Because we didn't mention it, the best combo is the Chitrog monster.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you discard your land to flip this, and you immediately draw a card. How good. Perfect. <laughs> Flawless victory. All right. I'm going to go with zero. Yeah, me too. I, I don't think that deck is a thing. Yeah. But hey, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Next up, Anguished Unmaking for one WB. Instant, exile, target, non-land permanent, you lose three life. How is that's this? It. That's the whole text box.
1: Yeah. So there's Vindicate, right? Which is a sorcery, <laughs> has the exact same casting cost, uh-huh. and exiles any permanent, right? No, it doesn't no, exile, sorry. It, destroys any permanent. destroys target permanent, yes. Yeah, target permanent, which means it can destroy yeah. planeswalkers just like this. The yeah. difference is this is an instant, this exiles, uh-huh. and you lose three life. So And the non-land part. And sorry, and that's the most important part. part. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. yeah. Probably. Probably. Is the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so where do you want to start?
0: Well, let's start with Vindicate, and yeah. I just want to point out the last time Vindicate appeared in paper top 8s was 2014, and at the time it was in keeperish four or five color control decks as a as a one of or a sideboard card sometimes in the case of the Burning Wish control decks.
1: I'm a lot more uh, uh, sorry. I was just gonna say I'm a lot more uh, bullish on Vindicate now that uh, Lodestone Golem's restricted. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> fair enough. <clears throat> So, uh, But the simple truth is is that since that time, we've had better removal printed by way of Abrupt Decay and lots of other things have changed in Vintage. This card, though, in my eyes, is actually pretty tempting as an alternative to an Abrupt Decay. Right. I mean, that's pretty attractive. No, it There's is. There have been whole archetypes in um, in terms of like aggro control and bug fish and then bug control. There have been whole archetypes that are heavily inspired by the existence of abrupt decay right and those decks might be dramatically different if you swapped out green for white well abrupt decay has gotten so
1: much mileage from its capacity to deal with oath and 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 and, and mentor and and all that stuff and this this does too of course abrupt decay is uncounterable which makes it which i think just makes it in many ways just much much better but 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 this can hit larger cards so i guess the main question i would have what can this hit that abrupt decay can't that's incredibly relevant I can name Jace the Mind Sculptor off the top of my head. Uh, nothing else stands out except for like big Tinker and Oath targets.
0: Uh, well, all the workshop cards, of course. Yeah, of course, um, sorry, and all the workshop all, cards. Yeah. Yeah, Lodestone, Smokestack, Forge Master, Karn. Also, this exiles, so it yeah. deals with all the all the uh, otherwise detritus of a Worm Coil Engine. Yep. Yeah, and and, and, it and it hits steel white steel not, it hits Gristle brand Yeah,
1: ah, those just that list of cards that we're talking about just does not seem good enough to justify this over Abrupt Decay. Of course, we could be talking about the deck that doesn't have green; it's white black. In which case, this yeah. is I think this I think this is better than Vindicate. I mean, there are certainly cards. <laughs> I, I hate to jump from Abrupt Decay to Vindicate, but but if Abrupt Decay if Vindicate's main targets that are lands are probably library, mm. which sees not that much play in Vintage, some, but not it's not ubiquitous. And certainly not a card that you need to you need to vindicate a lot. Um, I think this card is probably better than vindicate. The instant speed yeah. gives it, I think, the edge. Um, That's big. Yeah, so wherever Vindicate would show up, I would expect this to. The main question in my mind is, is this better than Abrupt Decay? And frankly, Jace the Mind Sculptor is not what it once was. It still sees a lot of play, but it's not nearly as big as it once was in the format. And I don't think you get enough... I mean, Blightsteel Colossus has diminished so much. I don't think you get enough from that.
0: I think there's something to be said for the fact that Esper is a persistently playable vintage color combination. There's been a lot of Esper mentor lists lately, a little bit of Esper Tez Maybe this card takes up multiple slots in that list, right? Those decks are playing swords to plowshares. They're playing Disenchants, or well, wear tear. And they're not playing wear tear. Um, but this overlaps. This is some good utility to overlap with your plows and your Disenchants. And there's another one more card I like to compare to. And I know the comparison is is a stretch, but uh, dismember this plays some of the work that this member does in addressing workshops and mentor in one card. I mean, you just can't beat this utility. This card has good targets in every single matchup, uh, save, I guess, that doesn't against Reg and Dark Petition, but uh, in, in the majority of matchups, all the Gush Aggro decks, all the Workshop decks, all the Oath decks, all the Control decks. Right now, we're in a vintage environment where you can justifiably main deck two or three copies of Abrupt Decay. Some sure. people have even done four in certain Oath lists.
1: Yeah, I mean, it hits Monastery Mentor, Young Pyromancer, Oath of Druids, yeah. um, all kinds of cards and Seer Resistance. It's it's certainly legitimate.
0: We, we can't yet predict exactly what's going to happen yeah. to the environment based on the lodestone restriction, but it could be that that combined with some other moving factors, and this new set means an Esper Mentor or an Esper Controlling deck Uh, kind of comes on the rise. Yeah,
1: I'm skeptical this will see play because of Abrupt Decay and because Vindicate hasn't seen any play. And I mean, this is just a better card than a card that doesn't see play, which doesn't give you any (laughs) confidence that it will see play. Uh, It certainly strikes me as Vintage playable. So if you're the completest out there, I would recommend maybe picking up one or two for your collection. Can't hurt. Although you might wait until it rotates out of Type 2, which would be a couple of years from now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, but you're, uh, but you're right. Will, if if yeah. you're in an Esper deck, which would not use Abrupt Decay, then this probably does look like a decent singleton. I, yeah. I, I, could, I could see it come. I could see it appearing. I just don't have a lot of confidence that it will.
0: Now, you and I are not ones to recommend three mana removal spells, right? Right. right exactly. Every, every, everything this is even with Invit- Deed. Is awesome. Yeah. Right, everything this is competing with in Vintage costs one or two, and that's a major strike against it. This is, it would have to have major upside for you to for you to switch colors from away from Abrupt Decay or to, to cut out copies of Swords to Plowshares or disenchant from somewhere in your deck.
1: Yeah, this is the kind of card I could see Brian DeMars playing in his Esper Mentor deck. I definitely. definitely. <laughs>
0: So I think you and I are in agreement that this this sees play. It's going to be probably a one of. Yeah. What do you? I think that's right. I think the, the the viability of this card has a lot to do with how workshop decks reshape themselves. Because I cannot recommend trying to play a three-color, three-mana, excuse me, card Try. to destroy anything in, in a workshop deck. Yeah,
1: it's, I mean, I do like the fact that this, this does stop hangerback walker shenanigans because it doesn't die; it exiles it. That's nice, but it's not going to do oh. anything with a ravager in play. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's true. Well. I agree with your summary. This is vintage playable. Might not have a home for the foreseeable future. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with zero.
1: Uh, I'm, me too, then.
0: But I won't be surprised if this is in someone's one copy in someone's Esper Mentor deck me or me similar. Either. Me either. You know, we're going to end up saying a lot of the same things about the next card. (laughs) Declaration in Stone. 1W, Sorcery, Exile, Target Creature, and all other creatures its controller controls with the same name as that creature that player investigates for each non-token creature exiled this way. So, 2 mana, Creature Exile... You get all copies of that creature that they control, note that, not that you control it too, and they get a whole bunch of clues if you get rid of... Uh, <laughs> they get, they're going to get at least one clue unless this is targeting tokens. This is competing directly with Swords to Plowshares. It's also competing directly, in my opinion, with Engineered Explosives and, to a lesser extent, Ratchet Bomb. Remind me just one more time, the clue is a two... The, oh, sir. The clue is an artifact that's... it's a token of an artifact that has two generic sacrifice this draw card
1: right okay so you it put that in two the mana
0: to, to draw yeah. from the clues uh so it's pretty clear that any deck that's currently packing swords to plowshares is, is at least considering this card right that's probably a good starting point that's probably uh, it, fair yeah i mean con- con- considering meaning you, you would evaluate how this is better or worse so In terms of better or worse, where is it better? Well, it's better when your opponent has two or more of the thing you're trying to get rid of. Like, against Oath, for example. This card is almost always going to be worse than than Plow. Okay, it doesn't give them seven life for Gristlebrand, and it doesn't get Mental Misstepped. But broadly speaking, I'm okay with them getting the life if I'm able to cast my (sighs) spell. Yeah where this card shines is against the token army right so mm-hmm. in a in a mentor mirror you get to exile all of your opponent's monks if you want and none of your own I, you know... and they don't get any, they don't get any clues I think the and against dredge too.
1: The great irony of this card is that its strongest use is probably exiling lodestone golems, which is now restricted. Uh, (laughs) Not only that, because oftentimes people would play like lodestone golem and then use metamorphs to copy it, so it would remove the metamorphs as well, right?
0: Yeah, it would. Um, All of them have the same name. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, I think your point about tokens is well taken. So if your opponent has like three pyromancer tokens and you play this on the tokens, you get three clues.
0: No, and you only so, get clues for the non-token exactly. creatures. Exactly. So, so you get so,
1: none. So and, and the biggest problem is that, like you were just pointing out, is the the monks are not the same. They're not the same creature as not the same name. Same name as the monastery mentor. Same with pyromancer.
0: Yeah. So the good news is that this can get rid of either or. Bad news is it won't get rid of all. Yeah, and you're, you get to choose when you're casting it, which is more important, of course. Yeah. Uh, so it, it if. If, if This is better at playing from behind against a Mentor or a Pyromancer, right? Because if your opponent has two or three or four tokens, this is going to be better for you than a Plow, because you're going to get all those tokens out of the way. You might still lose that game because you were behind anyway, and you're just treating the symptoms, <laughs> not the disease. Um, so there's that. If you think you can weather the tokens, though, this is as good as Plow, in the sense that it gets rid of the Monk or the Pyromancer. But it's worse in the sense that they suddenly get some card advantage on right, the deal. They're going to exactly. get clue. They don't get the life, though, which in the, in the case of Monks or Mentors and Pyromancers is usually not the most important part.
2: Yeah, that's uh, the thing. I say
0: usually. Yeah, but also, as I said, w- as it pertains to getting rid of tokens, this is competing directly with engineered explosives, which already gets rid of all their tokens for the same for cheaper. Actually, in terms of it's all generic mana.
1: Yeah, it's it's frustrating that the uh, the opponent gets the clues. <laughs>
2: you know, yeah, I know.
1: Th- th- I think that card. That, I mean, that kind of disqual. I mean, you you would much it's rather vein than, of wow, right? you would
0: much rather them gain life than get get a card, right? Why? Um, most cases. Most of the time, I would say yes. I mean, thinking about how you're applying this, right? Against dredge, I would much rather give them all the tokens, the the clues in the world. Fair enough. Right? Fair enough. And in certain race conditions, against you know, in the mentor mirror, for example, there's probably certain corner cases where the the two to four life that plow gives them is the deal breaker. But but that's probably the minority of exactly. cases. Exactly. And the times that you are gonna lose a game because you can't cast this in a timely manner against a workshop deck. Is in my opinion probably the biggest deal breaker. So th- this is at best when you're I don't know behind on board against monks or elementals or zombies. In every one of those cases, engineered explosives already exists, and in my opinion is an overall far superior card due to other applications. So I, yeah, I just I just I, don't think I, there's I, case. I don't think there's a use case for this that we don't already have a better solution for.
1: Maybe I'm missing something, but I just don't see this card as even nearly as exciting as Anguished Unmaking. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, th- that's true. I mean, this is effectively treating the symptoms in every one of the cases we're describing, right? Right. It's good at getting rid of the tokens. And in Vintage, if, you're, if your opponent has a bunch of tokens, something else is going wrong. Getting rid of the tokens is not going to help you <laughs> unless right. you've already got another way to address the source. So, I mean, against Dredge For example, if they managed to go a couple of turns and you didn't have a a hate card and they got a small army of tokens and then you found your cage, Hmm. you could play this and then cage and you may have cleaned up the situation. But as I said, explosives already does that. Yeah,
1: exactly. There's explosives. There's lots of other removal spells that are better than this at that. All
0: right. I'm comfortable with zero on this.
1: Yeah, I'm comfortable with negative.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Let's move on to Sagarda, Heron's Grace. 3 GW, Legendary Creature Angel, flying. Now pay close attention. You and humans you control have hexproof. She also has the ability to generate, colon, not colon, comma, exile a card from your graveyard, colon, put a 1-1 white human soldier creature token onto the battlefield. 4-5. So she doesn't have hexproof, (laughs) you should note, right off the bat. But you and any humans you control do. And for those of you who have been playing Vintage for a while, you know that giving yourself Hexproof is quite useful against things like Oath of Druids, of- <laughs> yeah, tendrils of agony, Cabal Therapy, <laughs> thought Thoughtseize. There are there are a number of key cases where you having Hexproof is critical, and it's part of the reason why cards like Aegis of the Gods see some sideboard play, and why Leyline of Sanctity is a playable card. Right.
1: Uh, unfortunately hexproof does not deal with sweepers, so it doesn't deal with the cards that we've just been talking about, like Engineer explosives or pyroclasm or anything like that. Yeah. Um nor is this really I mean, Ages of the Gods and Leyland of Sanctity giving you hexproof is great because they're fast. Same yeah. same frankly with um you know, workshops powering out Witch bane Orb, or... Right. You know, it's a turn one play. Right. Uh, this is far from a turn one play. So this, <laughs> this is unlikely to be able to stop an oath activation. Yeah. Uh, so its value is going to come from protecting your creatures from targeted removal, which... You know uh,
0: this is with with some upside late in the game if you've survived that long, right? yeah,
1: you can exile graveyard cards to generate f- tokens at a very slow pace. Yeah. <laughs> this is slow, 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 slow. yeah, and
0: five mana, five and four five for five mana, four five is not a very impressive body,
1: yeah, if this had delve, I would say maybe. <laughs> ah. Heck, if this cost green white, I would say probably playable in a hate bears deck. Yeah, maybe not a lot. Where not a lot else. Um, I don't know. It's five. Well,
0: it, yeah. This would probably. Rip, oh, that's. This isn't Maloku. It, 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 I it, mean, it, let's be clear. It's yeah. not. It's not in a deck that doesn't play Moxon, this is effectively... I mean, the difference between this at green-white and Aegis of the Gods at, at one-white is probably slim. But even slim. then, you're right. Oh, sorry. It's yeah, slim.
2: Right. Yeah,
0: Yeah, green-white. But white. so, I, I agree with you. I think this is... I mean, the, the thing is, is that if you had a Hate Bears deck that was green-white and wanted something on the top end to put games away this would not be it my, my instincts tell me there are there are several better things than this yeah like i don't know uh i can't think of what those things are because i don't think this way about hate bear decks about four and five mana creatures but salvagers for example <laughs> i don't know yeah it's it is not yeah. any good with Thalia, well, but um probably like I, some I of those know. dragon
1: lords of some sort
0: yeah maybe dragon lord dramica or ojitai um uh, I, I, you're right. I just don't see it. You're, those hate bear decks are they 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 bank on being redundant as much as possible, right? You're gonna have lots of redundant effects, uh, the taxing effects like Thalia, or the disruptive effects like um, Canonist or uh, Spirited Labyrinth or aforementioned um, Aegis of the Gods. This is for as much as this card does, it's actually really narrow. Yeah, it's true. And yeah. on top of all of that, she doesn't have uh, hexproof herself. So you might invest a whole lot just to get swords.
1: Yeah, we should also mention there's True Believer, which came out, you know, also gives you hexproof, so to speak. You shroud. Yeah,
0: yeah. there's enough ways to get hexproof at far cheaper that I don't think this has a place.
1: If if the other abilities were better, maybe, but,
0: you know. That's true. If her activated ability was somehow a backbreaking, like it removed artifacts or enchantments or, I don't know. If it did something to justify cleaning up the board somehow, or threaten cleaning up the board at least. Okay, I'm comfortable with zero. Me too. Let's talk about a prized amalgam for one UB, creature zombie. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield, right. whenever a creature enters the battlefield, that's any creature, if it entered from your graveyard... Or you cast it from your graveyard. Return Prized Amalgam from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped at the beginning of your next end step. Three, three. Okay, there's a lot of conditionality going on Definitely. here, but basically, it's in your, it's living in your graveyard, and if you cast or somehow return a creature from your graveyard, it comes along too. So, if you're. Um, it's a hanger on. Yeah, well, it's, it, it triggers on Narcomoebas, it triggers on Blood Gas, it triggers on Icarids, it triggers on Dread Return, it triggers on nearly everything that Dread is wait, wait. doing. Th-
1: this triggers from Narcomoeba? Narcomoeba is when you reveal it from your, your library.
0: Yeah, but where is it when you reveal it from your library? Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. It's sitting in your graveyard. Yeah. Is that true? Nargamiga's trigger condition is when it's put into your graveyard from your library. Got it. Yes. Okay, thanks. I, so I, for some fine. reason, I had
1: in my mind that it was eight Exiles for a moment or something.
0: You're thinking of the new madness mechanic. Yeah. Where you set it aside. Yeah. yeah. No, is like the old madness mechanic. Got it. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not really one for one. But the, the point is, everything Dredge is doing, aside from Dark Depths, is going to bring back a prized amalgam that's in their graveyard. Sick. Within reason. That's pretty cool. Yeah.
1: That, that makes but this a very interesting card, yeah.
0: But it happens at the end step, so you can't and it comes in tapped, so you can't get much value out of it that turn.
1: Oh well well that that murders it for for Dredge. I mean otherwise this thing could could join every Icarid and, and narconeaba yeah. that comes
0: back. Dang. Very good point. This is not good synergy with the things that Dredge is doing to facilitate its win, which is therapies and dread returns because this has to wait a turn to feed any of those and that i think as you just put it i think that's the death knell
1: oh that's that's an unfortunate clause they added there
0: yeah right wow (laughs) well so is there any other i don't think i don't think we really need to study if there's any other application for this card this is a dredge card through and through it's not in terms of its body, it's, it's, it's bigger than the other dredge, dredge creatures if you felt like just casting it, right? For three mana, you get three three as opposed to dredges filled with one two power creatures. So in that sense, it has a tiny bit of extra value as, a composed, as opposed to a, uh, a stinkweed imp, for example. But that's pretty small potatoes. Most dredge players would not care as much about that as the fact that they can't go off with this card effectively in one turn. That sucks.
1: So in the best case scenario, you like let's say you turn one bizarre, you discard a card, turn two dredge, reveal narco and you like bin a bunch of these guys and they come into play on your end step and then you can use them on turn three, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. That's the I think best, you're right best case scenario. I think th- I think that's it. Oh, and don't forget that the opportunity cost of playing any card in Dredge is cutting some other really good, good card. card right? Yeah, a dredger. I mean, the opportunity. Yeah, a, a dredger spell. or another disruptive. Yep, or another land. I mean, dredge cards are at a premium from a deck construction standpoint. Turn. I just don't think this card is impactful enough, even though it is very synergistic from a tactical standpoint. Yeah,
1: I guess. I guess it's just too abusive. I mean, if you didn't do it that way, you could like, you could use, return this thing multiple times per turn. So like. In your upkeep, you could return it. Then you could sacrifice it. Then you could activate a bazaar in your main phase and return it. You know what I mean? like, well, would just be, It would be pretty obnoxious.
0: You're right. And if you had two of them, you could get into a loop with oh. any kind of sacrifice.
1: Oh, that's that's why they had to do it. Yeah, I think you just hit it. They had to... Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, so in your upkeep, you could return an Icarate and bring it. Then you could dredge a narcomoeba in your draw step and bring it. And then, <laughs> and then you could... Sacrifice them with, you know, whatever, and then bring them yeah. back with more dredging.
0: Okay, zeros. <laughs> sorry, prized amalgam. <laughs> You've been All right, let's talk about the headliner from this set, Archangel Avison. This is going to be a lot of reading. 3WW, legendary creature angel, flying, fl- oh, sorry, flash, <laughs> flying vigilance. When Archangel Avison enters the battlefield, creatures you control gain indestructible until end of turn. When a non-angel creature you control dies, transform Archangel Avicen at the beginning of the next upkeep. Jeez. And the backside is Avicen the Purifier. She's a legendary angel. All she is is six five flying, and when she transforms into this side, she deals three damage to each other creature and each opponent. Woof. So we mentioned that white green hate bears might be looking for <laughs> something big to do in the uh four to five mana range. How about this? No, seriously though, this—the only application I could think of for this card is, um, we could do it our rigor, but I'm this card reminds me of, um, Blue Angel. Oh, Restoration to Angel.
1: It. Yeah, I just, I think it'd be helpful to
0: understand this card
1: better if we just walk through how it would play. Yeah, so, so let's say we get to five mana. La di da di da. I cast, I cast <laughs> this card for five mana. Comes into play.
0: On your opponent's end step. Yeah,
1: sure. Let's say, let's do it on my opponent's end step. <laughs> so you've decided to do uh-huh. something. I'm going to play this on your end step. And all of a sudden, all my creatures are getting indestructible. So I might do it as a way
0: until end of yes, turn. Yes, so I might yeah. do it in
1: response to like a plow or I guess like a, a sweeper, like pyroplasm. Right, I could do it.
0: Plow is a bad example, but oh yes. right, because it, that
1: doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> hold, abrupt decay is probably decay, better. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. so then, yeah, and then whenever any other creature I have basically, basically, dies, any non-angel to be technical, I transform yeah. it into this avicen. So, like, like, there's a tension there because I'm going to put it into play to prevent something from dying. Then I've got to have something yeah. actually die, which could happen, like, yeah. a couple turns later. Then something does die. Then it turns into a 6-5 flyer that says... When it trans- transforms into this, it deals three damage to each other creature and each opponent. So it's going to wipe out everything on the board, likely. It-
0: likely. In- I mean, it's going to wipe out everything that Men- isn't Monest- Gristlebrand. Monastery <laughs> Mentor,
1: prob- possibly. 50%. Possibly. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, it's probably a coin flip as to whether or not that kills Mentor. Yeah. But uh, most everything else that isn't Gristlebrand or Blightsteel or a couple of the big artifact creatures. So it's just like, the- or, There's yeah. like a concept. Doesn't kill salvagers.
1: Yeah, there you go. There's a conceptual tension here, right? Which is that, like... Definitely. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, that's part of the flavor of this card, is that Archangel was a a protector. She was created, and her mandate originally was to be a protector. That's why she's in Archangel Avacyn. And then when one of her protectees dies, in in the Shadows over Innistrad story, she becomes very wrathful. So, That's why she so the sheepdog
1: ra- kills all the sheep when one of the sheep is killed? I mean, that just doesn't make... I mean, whatever.
0: Well, yeah. Avacyn is being positioned here, I think, as something of a tragic figure. Well, it and, reminds me more yeah, of like a Lucifer or something, but fair enough. Well, yeah, there's more to it than that. <clears throat> it's complicated. Yeah. Right? I mean, read this flavor text. She says... Wings that once bore hope are now stained with blood. She is our guardian no longer. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Um, it's it's got to be let's frustrating. Talk, let's use some of our well, rigor. Go ahead.
1: Well, sure. I mean, five mana in three white white, there's not much. I don't think there's anything that really sees play in Vintage at that casting cost. But there are five casting cost colored spells that see play. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. I mean, yeah. Restoration Angel is five mana. Is that right?
2: No, four. Four. It's four, it's four mana, four.
1: which is a significant difference. Mm-hmm. But um, yep. so there are definitely cards, creatures of this ilk, that see play at four. Um, I think the biggest issue, though, outside of that kind of rubric, is that this card potentially destroys your whole army if you're playing it in a creature deck. You know, that's devastating <laughs> yeah. if you're playing with, I don't know, like trinket mages and anything like that.
0: So, so it, the tension is real. And vintage decks, for better or for worse tend to not do well if they have that kind of tension built in. there's not a lot of vintage decks that i mean there is there's strategic diversity don't get me wrong but they're they're built to be you know razor's edge margins you don't want to have to be sacrificing your own cards for low value just to play other cards you're trying to avoid that at all costs vintage decks there's no such thing as a vintage creature deck that switches gears from being in a you know a flood the board kind of deck to a kill you with this one big thing kind of deck. I mean, within reason, dredge does that sometimes, but that's it does both of those things instead of one or the other. <clears throat> um, so the notion that you would play this with other creatures, yeah, seems. Mm-hmm. I, somehow unlikely because the primary yeah. value yeah. of playing this with other creatures. There's two of them. There's the protection of the indestructible, and then when those it's, creatures die, she gets more wrathful. But the protection. You started giving an example of the protection, yeah. and it's going to be Abrupt Decay. It's going to yeah. be Lightning it's Bolt. T- it's going to be creature combat. And the, those that's, it's, it's, those are not good uses of, of three ww in you,
1: <laughs> you resolve it. You protect your stuff, and then what happens? Yeah. Then what happens is your workshop opponent dismembers or something and the entire board is wiped it's just this is just not not right
0: and also the benefit of of losing a creature to flip her is not that great she goes from four power to six power and she loses multiple combat abilities no she loses one combat ability excuse me she loses flash which is irrelevant but she loses vigilance as well so she i mean she gets debatably worse when she flips in certain contexts she'd be worse certain contexts you'd rather have her as a four four vigilance than a six five not vigilance so yeah I just i'm trying to think of and there's not a lot of sweepers that are played in Vintage that she would actually protect you from either. She would protect you, put Pyroclasm, but that's not played very much. Far more likely is Engineered Explosives, which she does legitimately protect from. But that's only if all of your creatures are the same mana cost, right? I mean, she's she's going to save you some tokens if you're a Pyromancer deck, in theory. She's going to save, save you some Monks if you're a Mentor deck, in theory. But the other sweepers, along the likes of, uh, say, Toxic Deluge, nope. she doesn't nope. help you there. Balance. She doesn't help you there. So she's not. There's not a lot of sweepers that she's relevant against in vintage. And if you're sacrificing your board position to make a big threat, she's also tactically weak against swords and dismember and uh, Smokestack and a number of other things like duplicate. And she doesn't pair up against very well against Grisarbrand. Yeah, I, I think we're believing the point. The, te-
1: the tension, the tension so, between this card and others are just too. too yeah. This card and this card's two functions are too yeah. divergent and in, in co- conflict with each other and the conditionalities are uncontrollable and so it can create some undesirable yeah. board states even if this card were playable in the first place which i don't think it is so I, i'm i have no hesitation yeah. in assigning this and predicting this to be zero
0: appearances me either all right let's try and finish strong here steve come on get <laughs> on board with thing in the ice for one you creature horror Defender, Thing in the Ice, enters the battlefield with four ice counters on it. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, remove an ice counter from Thing in the Ice. Then, if it has no ice counters on it, transform it! It's a zero four. 4 but what does it become? It becomes the Awoken Horror. Creature, Kraken Horror. <laughs> Get this. When this creature transforms into Awoken Horror, return all non-horror creatures to their owner's hands. Woof! 7-8. <laughs> Seven eight. What were they thinking? <laughs> one point twenty one gigawatts. <sighs> so, okay. so let's let's try to be let's try to be restrained about this, right? The mana, <laughs> well, the mana cost of one you yeah, is clearly and, a vintage mana cost. W- you right? know,
1: so the the one C, so to speak, or whatever we want to call it, has been the famed mana cost and vintage for creatures for a long time. I mean, we have Dark Confidant, you know, Queer and Dryad historically, and Tom Tomagoyf more recently, Young Pyromancer. Um, you know, there's been um versions of those printed in every color, yep. and there's the whole cycle now, right? With the <laughs> Snapcaster Mage, etc. So this is definitely playable right, right. In, in terms of a casting cost. Although admittedly, there has never been, to my knowledge or memory, rather, a zero four creature that's playable, but this is not a zero four, so
0: <laughs> yeah. You might argue that the mana cost of a generic and a colored mana is the ideal vintage mana cost right. because and it you get more value plays well with mox and sidesteps yeah, mental misstep. One. I just want to toss that out there. Yeah. But you're right. A 0-4? Uh, I don't, I, had, I don't think so. Did play? I, don't think so. No. Um, I'm hard-pressed to think of a 0-anything. Right. I mean, Jace Vryn's Prodigy is zero two. 2 so yeah, I, I suppose me. there's some precedent there. So also, nice this creature ball. has Defender. I mean, yeah. Defender is... It, yeah. It's, it's right, right up. Yeah. Which is, it's a relevant wall, right? I mean, as a 4 is a meaningful value. It's, it sidesteps Lightning Bolt. It blocks Revoker. Yeah. It blocks Small Ravagers. It blocks Mishra's Factory, uh, Young Pyromancer, Unflipped Delvers, yeah. Mentor, if you've got guts, <laughs> right? Um, Definitely. So it, it survives it's a relevant bolt, most toughness. importantly. Yeah, yeah. So then the conditionality of having to play Four instances right. of sorceries to get the the big value, so, the big payoff here. So I want, is I think, let me just provide an outline Bible. for how we
1: should attack the rest of this. First, I think we need to weigh the value of the 7.8 yeah. versus the the conditionality. So like let's look, let's look at how easy it is to make this thing flip. Fair enough. Then let's look at the value of the seven eight once it has flipped, how quick that, yep. how good that is in vintage. And then I want to look at the the bounce effect and see yep. what that means for design and what it means for Opposing, yeah. opposing threats. So let's start with the, like, as you were about to, I'm with the board. conditionality question then. So for, casting four instances or sorceries to unthaw this thing is not that conditional. It's a gush, yeah. a bolt, a preordain, and one other thing. It's not a force of will. It's not nothing, a but it's probably, will. what would you say, two turns in Vintage? I would say turns.
0: it's probably yeah. uh, it's probably about two and a half turns is what I would say. It's going to be two turns. It's going to be three turns. Yeah, and it plays directly right. into how most of the Gush decks are already structured. If you, uh, not that I'm, um, not that I'm advocating this, but if you were to take a Mentor or a Pyromancer deck and swap the Mentors slash Pyromancers out for this. You would already be ninety or ninety five percent of the way to a shell that was yeah. properly constructed right. for flipping this totally thing. Totally agree. So it's about two and Within a half reason.
1: turns. Now let's go to the body. Seven eight. Oh, that's in the best uh-huh. yeah, that I mean that whatever. That's in a deck designed to flip it. It could be longer in a deck that's less well designed. <laughs> so it's a seven eight.
0: Yeah. Um that is pretty yeah. big. That's that's pretty big. That's in to my eyes, seven eight is about the biggest could most perfect power and toughness yeah. that you could come up with that was that was reasonable because you need the seven because you want to threaten Gristlebrand, and you need the eight because you want to live through Gristlebrand, but also you need the seven because that's the highest tough or power you could reasonably have gotcha. before you get yeah. to ten in terms of clock, right? right. Seven is a three turn clock. The best you can do after that is ten, which makes it Yeah, a so two-turn... if it was
1: eight or nine, it's, it wouldn't be much, that much better.
0: Yeah, not that much better at eight or nine.
1: It would be, so so you could functionally think of this as a nine, eight, and it's still pretty much the same thing. Very no, I, the, the power is significant the clock is swift the the problem with any creature in a tempo based strategy these days that with this size is the same problem with Aquarian dryad that's eight, that's 8-8 eight, eight, which is that mm-hmm. it only takes a single yep. token to block it. and this happens
0: to circumvent that drawback yes somewhat. it does it
1: has built-in <laughs> protection so when it flips it bounces um why don't you take it away on that point
0: You know, Steve, my favorite part about the day that this card was spoiled was that I went on MTG Goldfish, and I looked at the top 10 creatures in Vintage. You might be able to guess what the most common creature type is among the top 10 creatures in Vintage. I was going to say Human, I'm I'm not going to put you on the spot here. It's Human, yeah. Among Pyromancers and Snapcasters and other things, it's Human. Do you know what the second most popular creature type in Vintage was the day that this card was spoiled?
1: I would say Wizard.
0: Look at the card.
1: Or... (laughs)
0: Wow. <laughs> Phyrexian Revoker and Icarid are both horrors, and they were both in the top ten, making horror the second most popular creature type that day. Now, that has ceased being true since then, sadly. Icarid fell to 11th place as of today, but my point is is that it's hilarious how relevant being a horror is in Vintage because this will not bounce a Revoker, it will not bounce an Icarid, and it will also not bounce a Phyrexian Metamorph copying a Revoker or a Phyrexian Metamorph copying a Thing in the Ice. It's most notable that Thing in the Ice will not bounce its brethren either. Other copies of Things in the Ice are not bounced by one flipping, which is, I think, highly relevant from a clock standpoint. And I like this bounce ability because, to my eyes, the vast majority of the top tiers of Vintage decks, there are lots of different strategies between Mana Denial and Graveyard-based and Spell-based and Gush-based and Oath-based. Uh, every single one of them is trying to kill you with a non-horror creature. Workshops are trying to beat you down. Granted, they have fewer lodestones to do it, but you got to believe you're still going to see your fair share of ravagers these days and trikes. Oath is Oath. It's trying to hit you with a giant creature. Dredge is trying to hit you with tons of creatures. Monastery Mentor, Young Pyromancer, Delver of Secrets. Even Rixus is eventually trying to kill you with a creature. Blight Steel Which, or Dark Confidant or I think or what whatever. you're
1: pointing to is that for the most part, with a couple of key exceptions, though, this, this card is going to bounce most things. It's not going to bounce Revoker. It's not going to bounce Icarid. Uh, but Icarid you don't really have to worry about because it goes away at the end of turn anyway. Uh, it's not a blocker. Um, but... Yeah. Here's the thing, Kevin, here's the thing. All of the tempo creature threats that are currently yeah. seeing play in gush decks play well with others. They share their toys. <laughs> they they like to team up. They like to team up. Delver is very friendly with Young Pyromancer. Young Pyromancer is very, he's on really good terms with Monastery Mentor. Yeah. This guy is
0: very selfish. Xenophobic. You <laughs> yeah,
1: definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that tends to be a problem in contemporary gush decks because the tempo decks like playing with teams you know even even like a couple of years ago delver decks were using Tarmogoyf and vendillion click and trigon predator yep. and all that stuff even snapcaster mage now it's not a, a you know a, um a deal breaker with this guy but the 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 good news is though that his friends meaning copies of him really do reinforce the original effect so, you know, what's nice about the horror exception or exemption here is that the second or third one that transforms is going to clear a path for the first one. Yeah. So so even if things get mucked up on the ground, the, the next one's going to come in and help 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 you out. Um, yeah, it's it's just, I, I do have some reservations about the fact that he doesn't play well with others, and I think these tempo decks do need teams. They work best in team environments.
0: I have two thoughts. One is that Monastery Mentor decks frequently have... Only monastery mentors to attack with. Matt Murray has made a Kate has made a name for himself playing only monastery mentor plus Jace Wren's prodigy. Right, where monastery mentor is doing all the work. So there's one case. You're right about the bigger picture. Gush decks tend to have you know eight to twelve creatures, but that's not always okay. Well, I'd say Fair six enough. to ten. At least two sets of aggressive creatures, right? Yeah. So more than just four. That is the norm, but mentor has sometimes been the exception. The other thing is is that. It seems to be what you're setting up here is a challenge from both a deck construction and a tactical standpoint. I think those are constraints in which you can work and be successful. Because all you need to do is find another creature or two that are okay with being returned to your hand. And there's some really good candidates in like Snapcaster for and Mage? which, yes, <laughs> yes, for which returning them to your hand no. equals extra value. I
1: think you make an excellent point, and I should have I should have had a caveat that he does play well with Snapcaster Mage, which is probably yeah. the card that you want to use with him. But yeah. here's something else, and also we should say that Jason Finch Prodigy may actually leave play, so by the time there's this thing synergy. is unsolved, yeah. so it's probably fine as well. But here's what here's what I want to respond to your first point. I think your second point is really well taken. But your first point, I think the most successful mentor lists actually, I think I'm I I can't say for sure, but I think I'm backed up on the data are the ones that have more than just mentor. You talk about pyromancer. And uh, well, may, maybe, but for the, pyromancer yes, would I be mean, the would so be the big the opportunity one, the, cost
0: of playing with this definitely. instead of mentors. So the right? men,
1: the the. Mentor deck that won the Power Nine challenge had mentor had pyromancers uh-huh. and you know as soon as mentor was spoiled I played pyro, I played mentor in two <laughs> VSL trimesters to miserable results with just with just <laughs> mentor and I quickly discovered and had done much better with it since I added other creatures. Mm-hmm. And in fact, my local event—I think I got first or second place in the local event once I added Pyromancers in, and then I got third place at the AVC vintage mm-hmm. championship with Pyromancer. So I have never had success with Mentor with just Mentor because it just hasn't been reliable enough, in my opinion. I can never. There are too many games where I'm just in a hard control role and I can't find a threat quickly enough. I've mm-hmm. always felt like it needs it needs more support. Now I I do take your point that there are people. Out here, there who have had success with it without support, but I mean, but I, I think that that I think I, I think you're right, and numerically
0: speaking, that is probably true that that's been the exception. My success with Mentor has been primarily in builds that have just mentors and then either a combination of Snapcasters or JVP. So I. I my experience tells kind of the opposite story. I am very confident in a deck that has four main aggressive creatures plus a couple of utility creatures that aren't there to, you know, for the primary purpose of, of attacking. But your point is well made. Any deck that's trying to use Thing in the Ice as its primary win condition is going to need to be very carefully constructed to have some additional threats. Because I think the data proves out that just four in terms of threats for an aggro control or control deck like this is not the sweet spot. Even if they are quite large. What is the sweet spot? (laughs) I feel like the sweet spot is six to eight. I've been with running this. with six. Oh, with this? Well, I've yeah. been, I've been running my mentor decks with four mentors and then two something else. Yeah. I felt pretty good about that. You yeah. can justify up to four of something else's. I feel good about I that. I mean
1: the Delver decks that you see online have often had ten. I mean so you know, they've been yeah. like, you know, in the past like two Vendalian clicks, four delvers, four Pyromancers, or
0: two Snapcaster,
1: yeah. two four Delver, four Pyromancer. Six to ten is is yeah. generally. I think the normal, after the range.
0: Snapcaster and JVP, the pickings get pretty slim in terms of creatures that are very they're rewardingly synergistic with the thing in the ice. You could make a case that you want to try and build a deck that has revokers because they don't. Get right, bounced, right, right. But that's. That's what the, I'm saying. The, that, just technically weak.
1: You're basically making the the main point I made is that he just doesn't play as well with others. So he doesn't like to share his toys. But the ones that do, he plays but pretty
0: damn well with. I still think there's a successful deck there, though. Sure. I still think 4 plus 2 is a winning strategy. So I think that's no, I I really, reasonable but narrow. Yeah, so
1: you're suggesting maybe like 4 of this and like 2 Snapcaster. So
0: that's a good starting point. I
1: yeah, I think that's a perfectly reasonable uh, way to go, um, boy! Vendillion click looks more attractive with
0: it too. <laughs> Vendillion click is on the short list, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can't play me mean, two with the nice. most clicks. <laughs> 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 it's a very short list. <laughs> Trust <laughs> me. <laughs> also, any kind of creature that's sneaky and and isn't always a creature is a, is a good case. Uh, and I know this is not a winning combination necessarily, but uh, Mistress Factory stands out, right? Yeah. So Mistress Factory can do some cleanup work, or you know, get some chip damage in until this shows up, and and the Awoken Horror can flip, and then Mistress Factory can get out of the way, just like Jay's Friend's Prodigy can get out of the way. Uh, I can't think of another great example. I mean, any Creature Land will serve a similar function.
1: But if you play this card, you're probably going to want to play the Mercen Scroll, though.
0: Well, sure. I don't see why not. Well, Merchant School yeah, is not great.
1: typically played in the Mentor and Delver decks these days.
0: But yeah. this one would be a little higher on the curve, I think, slightly higher than Delver, right? I mean, it would probably have a higher. Well, kind of...
1: I mean, this thing is is really efficient.
0: It's well, it's really efficient, but you're talking about it comparing a deck that has four one drops and then the curve ends at two <laughs> to a deck that starts at two and is playing maybe a three.
1: This card might also be very two. good with Modest- uh, with Mystic Remora.
0: Well. That's an interesting proposal. What, oh, we'll talk about oh. that. Why did you say that?
1: You know, I'll jump back to that. You know what? Mister Remorme reminds me. This card works really well with Myth
0: Realized. Oh, well, that falls into the creatures that are always creatures. Having. Yeah. Yes.
1: Myth Realized is a card that I see every once in a while, but it's powerful. It's powerful.
0: powerful. Yeah. And plus, that's interesting. Plus, it curves really, really nicely. Myth Realized on turn one and this on turn two means you haven't, you haven't preempted your thing in the ice with a, a sorcery or instant you haven't lost any value right. by making your first turn play and they both profit from every play thereafter yeah <laughs> that's kind of interesting i don't i don't know i don't think myth Realizes is, is going to make the cut ultimately but it's on your I short think... <laughs>
1: list <laughs> <laughs> no it's not <on> <laughs> <list. laughs>
0: <Okay>, true enough <laughs> um uh talk more about mystic remora though i mean i i am obviously a big fan of mystic remora but what is it about the interaction of these two that you like well
1: Mr. Cremora tends to compel the opponent to slow down a bit. And what you need is time to unthaw this thing. Mm. So I think there's a real synergy there. Also, you know, (laughs) there's a... Because your opponent's slowing down a little bit, they don't want to rush into the Remora. This thing slips in very easily with Remora in play. It's only two mana. It's even e- much easier than Mentor to play. And then what what is it they can play with the Remora in play? They can play creatures. Well, what is it yeah. that just so happens that this this deals with so effectively once it thaws out is creatures. So once this mm-hmm. thing flips with Mister Remora in play, I think you're just. Your business, it's over. Their, their opponent yeah.
0: is kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't. I mean, obviously, that's only true in certain matchups and in matchups that are uh – Creature, more creature based, right? But yeah. broadly speaking, a, a remora plus this in play kind of covers most of the bases in Vintage, right? <laughs> I mean, it's good against Dark Petition. You like the remora against against Delver. You like the thing in the ice and the remora, I suppose. Against Workshops, the remora is not so important, but the thing in the ice is quite nice. Let's let's talk about Workshops because I think one of the criticisms from this probably about this card is that even if you get it into play on turn one, you're gonna land Mox thing. there's a very real chance you're going to have a hard time putting four instants onto the stack over the course of the rest of that game if workshops gets a strong draw what do you think about that
1: i think getting to four is is not simple but i think it's feasible
0: you're going to build your deck around that of course just like is.
1: yeah i think that's a legitimate criticism
0: but Um, this thing does buy you some time by blocking the smaller creatures. Yes, it does. And it's not susceptible to any of the normal things that they would disrupt you with. In the sense of, it's not an activated ability that Revoker stops. It's good against Tanglewire just by being a cheap permanent. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a cheap permanent, which is a huge advantage. It's blue. Um, I think yeah. I think you're going to be able to cast probably at least two. Spells reliably. I mean, look, all the removal spells that you're gonna play, except Ingotcher, are gonna are gonna help trigger this.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's let's do a comparison between Thing in the Ice and Young Pyromancer in that scenario.
1: Okay, turn one this creature or pyromancer yeah yes. from th- in that scenario the pyromancer probably has the edge because every card you play is a permanent mm-hmm. that can block and or get tangle wired or smokestacked mm-hmm. uh,
0: what do you think though uh, i'd like to i'd like to offer up a, a hypothetical though or not a hypothetical that's the wrong word i'd like to offer up a, a measurement or a spectrum at which point, in terms of number of spells played, would you rather have Thing in the Ice over Young Pyromancer? Like, if if you play Young Pyromancer, and then you can only ever play one more spell that game, yeah. you're going to lose that yeah, game, right?
1: But you would prefer Pyromancer, right. If you can right. play two... you know, that, That's an interesting question. Um, you know, it could be... Like, let's say you have... Okay, let's just continue with the hypothetical. You have turn one Pyromancer, yeah. or this. Turn yeah. two, you can play Preordain. So, you know, yeah. they play the Sphere, you play another land, you cast Preordain. Turn three. Let's say you want to play Shattering Spree for two mana and two things. Uh, which is better then? Would you rather have Pyromancer or Thing in the Ice? The, at that point, so far, you'd rather have Pyromancer. Yep. You're going to be able to attack for at least three, and you're going to have another token. Yeah. You'd prefer Pyromancer at that point. I think it's you know it's arguable that the next turn you you, you probably are going to be able to unthought the mm-hmm. next turn and then likely attack, likely but not guaranteed. Uh, pyromancer is just much better because of tangle wire, uh, dealing with tangle wire in yeah. a lot of the scenarios and it also can block you know it makes attacking with revokers and things like that a lot trickier
0: once you get to the fourth spell once the awoken horror shows up do you think that it's it's Always better than a pyromancer after that point, or do you think there's still some four and five spell games where you'd rather have just had a pyromancer? I think
1: there. I think pyromancer is is often going to be better. So if your opponent has a metamorph, you don't want them copying your awoken horror. That's a problem. Oh uh, yeah. I'd rather than copy a, a pyromancer than a Awoken Horror. The other thing is <laughs> the other thing though is Tabernacle. If they play it, is much worse for the pyromancer than the Awoken Horror. That's a good point. And Tabernacle so, is so the
0: Woken, is somewhat common. Somewhat, yeah. The Awoken Horror deck is also, much more uh, resilient to uh, that technology. Dismember, which is a common anti-creature yeah. tool, for shops. Although the problem there is that that answers the front face thing in the ice and Young Pyromancer just as well. Right. You'd rather have Pyromancer because the Pyromancer... Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about other matchups then. Yeah. So the other biggest matchup right now probably is Mentor in terms of how you're constructing your deck. Um, I think that as per, as it compares to Young Pyromancer, I would rather have Thing in the Ice than a Young Pyromancer in the Mentor matchup, broadly speaking. Huh. I think it's a, I think bounce, it's a bigger threat. Yeah, the because ba- you're racing to bit the, to unthought. But there are certainly plenty of scenarios and and discrete interactions like with swords to plowshares where the pyromancer is superior. True. That's. That's not debatable no, there. I think
1: you make a good point. It might be better in the, the mentor match. In the dredge match though, I can't escape the feeling I'd rather have the vertical no sorry, the horizontal growth. Well
0: I've I don't have very much experience playing with young pyromancer against dredge. I do. Would and you, here's would you say that the tokens really do make a big difference? They do. Here's part of the problem the part of the
1: problem is when you are playing against Reg with a gush deck or a pyromancer deck in particular you often are not playing a lot of spells because you're trying to hold up all of your counter magic you can't tap down for preordain easily because you're yeah. tra- you're trying to protect you're holding up flusher storm mental misstep all yeah. of that and it's dangerous and you're you're either trying to protect Leyline or Dakes Jailer or you're trying to find, play, and protect Graftaker's Cage. So which doesn't trigger trigger the so what I'm saying is with the Pyromancer you can like get maybe like one or two tokens that you're gonna be attacking with for like four turns to win the game. Whereas the thing in the ice would just be sitting there in defender. It could be sitting there for ten turns. Yeah, Seriously. That's a good if, point. If you yeah. have like a cage, I would prefer to have the power mancer in that matchup, despite the potential to bounce a bunch of. It's interesting because if you're behind though, then the thing in the ice may be better. But the window of opportunity for triggering it is too small to be reliable in my opinion.
0: <clears throat> I think I agree. I think it has a little bit to do with what your sideboard plan against dredge is though. If your sideboard plan against dredge involves instance and sorceries like well sorceries no but true. Um, if it's surgical extraction Raven's or trap uh, or yeah trap then the thing gets a little bit better more reliable i guess yeah yeah and, and that's true and it also depends if you're playing gitaxian probe in your deck right, that right. Also it also difference. depends on whether or not your snapcaster mages are in post sideboard yeah if you have kind of, of you don't, yeah probably so. not i agree and then against oath it seems pretty clear to me that against Oath, Thing in the Ice is just way better than a young pyromancer.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, see, that's a kind of a similar situation to Dredge, where you, the game might be, I've got this cage in play, and you're not Oathing because of it. I've also got this storm in hand that I'm holding up for your show and tell. And I'm just sitting here and like attacking, and I'm not really playing any spells at all. But I've got this pyromancer mm. with one or two tokens.
2: Well,
0: I think that could happen, but... The scenario you set up is kind of as though you're not doing anything else, well, well, and that seems like the, you're not. the minority... I mean, you're, you really may not... Well, you're not casting preordain, you're not casting gush, you're not forcing anything else. I mean, that's that's kind of a stretch, that you're not doing anything else.
1: Well, a lot of the resources that you were using were done used to find the cage and protect it. It's right. You may be preordaining, you may be doing a little bit, but... It's also the case that some of the tokens that you have aren't like. It's not unusual to have like two forbidden or orch- two spirit tokens mm-hmm. and one pyromancer and one one uh, pyromancer token. Mm-hmm. Like that strikes me as like a familiar gotcha. scenario.
0: It's worth noting Del- though yeah. that th- what you're talking about is realistic in the sense that you get some damage in with a pyromancer for a couple of turns, maybe even two to four turns. Right. But if the game is going that long, the odds of you flipping a thing in the ice are going up. Powerfully.
1: That's true, but how much value how much value does the balance really
0: have against Oath? I mean if they get to draw fourteen cards, it doesn't really matter to well, me that much. It, it matters in the sense that it depends on what kind of Oath build they are, I guess. Yeah. If they're a three if they're a three gristle brand build, then you're thinking the ice is a serious threat to their creatures. Uh,
1: I don't know. I, I don't. But, I don't think so. I think their capacity to just key vault, jace out, all that, or even just find show and tell and gristle branded or oath again is too high. Okay. I don't. I okay. Don't and
0: also, abrupt decay just kills the awoken horror. Yeah. They, they can take it. They can afford to take a hit. Yeah. You're right about that. Okay. You're right about that. I, I am persuaded that it's probably not that effectual against Oath. It might, ironically, it might be more effectual against uh, a Salvager's Oath in yeah. the sense that depending on the order in which they bring up their creatures, you might be able to hit them down to the point where they can't afford to take another hit, right? Yeah, that's true. If they don't Oath up right, Because friend, of its speed, yeah. yeah. If you hit them once when they've got a Salvager's in the play and they can't go off, that's tricky, though, because a second Oath activation frequently just enables the Salvager's combo. Right. So yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I, I'm not... I'm not convinced. I would need some more testing to know. I can imagine scenarios where the Awoken Horror is just too far ahead, but I can also imagine scenarios where you're right. They just draw 14 cards, and the fact that you return Gristlebrand to their hand is not relevant. I think we should try to bring this around to a conclusion, Steve. You and I both seem to agree that this card is is playable, right? This has a lot of upside in certain yeah. key vintage scenarios. It. It dovetails well with how Gush decks are constructed right now. It seems pretty reliable that you can flip it in a reasonable period of time, and that that flipping will be useful in many matchups. Just really a matter of how good is such a thing in the, in the broader metagame.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've got some high levels of uncertainty, and I, I'm a little concerned that we might be falling back in the end trap. Like, yeah. this card just looks really good on paper. But I think the two biggest outstanding questions for me are, how reliable is it mm-hmm. that you can really quickly get this thing to fall out? Forrest, I think the the point that you were making about Shops gave me some pause. Really did. And the second thing that I think is the biggest, un- second biggest uncertainty is what yeah. the metagame is going to wash out to look like. Um, I think that your point that this is really good against Mentor is excellent. And Mentor is yeah. going to be really strong in the new metagame. So I, I like that a lot, but it may just be too slow to really deal with the mentors cuz Mentor can just win so yeah, quickly.
0: Yeah. And and the way the the workshop decks that come out of this restriction could powerfully influence the ver, the viability of this also. If you end up with a lot more smokestack yeah. and Uba Mask based lists with fewer creatures, yeah. Then you're going to th- want responsibility be less gonna of good, power. you're going to want yeah, the more permanence, yeah.
1: So I've two uncertainties and one big concern and my biggest concern yeah. is again how well he plays with others. You basically have to build him with Snapcaster, and you know, yeah. look. This is a grow creature. It goes from zero four to seven eight. That's we've seen all those things happen. But what we have seen in the last couple of years is that the most powerful growth is either horizontal or it's exponential. That is the <laughs> intersection of horizontal and vertical, and and the the vertical growth creatures have just been disappearing out of the format. I mean, Delver has is yeah. one of the few ones you, left, really. And, and those that and those that do grow vertically, the most popular ones are those that are yeah. unbounded growth. Not to say that this is has such a limited, you know, it's not incremental going from <laughs> zero to seven. <laughs> well, is you know, big, after you said
0: all great. of that, I just realized the best comparison for this creature is Managorgor Hydra. Managorgor Hydra is our most recent and best vertical growth creature, and it hasn't put up a top eight on TC decks. In 2016, it did. It, it did appear in the uh, top eight of the. That's Power right. Nine there Challenge, was a, right. a Mystic Remora Gorgia Hydra deck, ironically, that was a hilariously right. awesome list. Right. Um, I think Gorgia <laughs> Hydra is a playable vintage card, also. Um, Certainly.
1: Yeah. It's the best. It's the best vertical growth creature there yeah. is right now. It, incremental, it, unbounded, incremental yeah. uh, vertical growth.
0: Um, so. It looks like I'm looking at the TC Dicks results for Mana Hydra, and there are seven results, but fully five of those are Jeremy Beaver. <laughs> Jeremy is yeah. known for loving uh, his, uh, his Gush-based or, or otherwise unique uh, aggro control decks. He's got some, some great brews. He, he beat me with um, Splinter Twin at Eternal Weekend in the uh, in the prelim it was pretty awesome anyway if you factor the jeremy beaver factor out then there's really only two or three and all of those were back in uh, november and december of last year mandagorger hydra is always kind of waiting in the wings for an opportunity if monastery mentor ever got restricted or something then mandagorger might step in but i think thing in the ice is along these lines I think you can build a playable deck out of it and a couple of top eights could come out of it. I'm gonna go with look at what Q four was. Q four was five. I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with five.
1: That sounds totally reasonable. I'm going to take the under okay. with three.
0: Also reasonable. And I look forward to explaining why we were really close but ultimately wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it would be great if it shows up in big numbers. I guess well not great if it got <laughs> cost-restricted,
0: but it would be fun at least.
1: <sighs> but it, it would be fun, yeah.
0: Alright. Thanks for listening to episode fifty-two of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, until next time, we wish you many insane plays.
2: not safe, protective game. <laughs> <laughs>